Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. It's Our nice show. to be back. Our yes. show. We don't have to say who we are and the name of the show anymore, because it's all in the new titles. Well, we can at least say it's our show rather than the show. The show. Welcome to show? the show. Anything of import? You met? Tell them who you met. Uh, I, I met Tim Quinn today. And there is a resounding sound of who? I knew who Tim Quinn was. Tim yeah. Quinn and Dickie Howitt used to do humour strips in Marvel UK weeklies. Mm. Oh, I'll tell you. Actually, I'm going to tell you later after you've done your introduction. That was the introduction. All right, okay. <laughs> um, after everyone else had left, it was just us six formers talking to him for an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. He was showing us some of his art and drafts and such, and he asked us, did we know The Walking Dead? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, do you know who Charlie Adler is? I said, yep, I've met him. I've got a sketch by him. He's like, ah, then let me show you these. And he digs up some really old Charlie Adler artwork. <laughs> original. Like, some of the first things he ever did, and it was just all comedy stuff. Cool. And he was like, I bet he never talks about this anymore. I said, no, he doesn't. He's the, <laughs> he's the Walking Dead person now. Does he not mention it? No. No, Tim Quinn used to do I'm, I'm pretty sure he was an editor as well. He said, yeah. As a, an artist. Yeah. Uh, that I should have gone to this thing, shouldn't I? Mm-hmm. With you. But I had to be at work. Apparently he was also responsible for getting Alice Cooper and Neil Gaiman to work on a comic together. Yeah, the DC published that, didn't they? Was it The Last Temptation of Alice? I've no idea. Is that not what it was called? He said it was for Marvel. Was it a Marvel? He said. Right. He didn't speak of the I remember publishers. the advert in yeah. the comics. Because doesn't it have a Dave McKean cover? Yeah. That's right. what I thought. But, okay, I didn't remember whether it was Marvel or DC, but I'm not sure it was DC, but he said Marvel, so... It's that sounding vaguely familiar, that it yeah. was Marvel. Anyway, okay, um, I don't have anything interesting to say this week. I've been reading more Conan, because Conan is awesome. I, re- I reread Scott <laughs> Snyder's Batman because of last week's show. Because of last week's show. Yeah. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, we'll do a couple of emails, but then we're going to cut that short, because tonight we have our second half of the bestest Batman ever... In our humble opinion. I couldn't get it to 10, so mine is 13. <laughs> yeah, I, I did top 10. I always had a problem with maths, didn't I? Yeah. So anyway, a couple of emails just to lubricate our voices, which are a bit better this week. Thank you for asking. Uh, our first email is from Robert Ludwig. It's called Just a Note. It says, Howdy, fellas. Howdy, Robert. First, I want to say thank you to the whole family. For wishing my son a happy birthday back when you did the Q&A podcast. He really liked that and we had a lot of people hear you say it as we were at a wedding rehearsal dinner the day after the show was released. <laughs> Do you know, I love the idea that he made the wedding rehearsal listen to our show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that amuses me no end. 
<laughs> I love the idea. I've still got a bit of a cough. I love the idea that they get to the point where they said, "Does anyone have any reason?" And it's me and you. <laughs> that would be awesome. Anyway, you're very welcome, Robert. I'm glad uh, that you had a good day. I'm glad that your son enjoyed it. It was no problem at all. Anyways, I just wanted to say how great a job you've been doing. Thank you. Uh, whether it's something I'm really familiar with or something I have no interest in, you guys do a great job of keeping me interested in the subject. In the first email I wrote to you guys this year, I noted that I downloaded your old shows from your old feed to my iPad, not my iPod. Well, I want to say it is a sad day as I have finally finished the backlog of episodes and would listen to those shows while doing stuff around the house with nobody else around. Usually this was cleaning, but at times I would just have one on while reading. I can't do that. I can't listen Listen to a podcast and read. Yeah, Yeah. If I'm reading, I either have a soundtrack on or music that I'm very familiar with so it doesn't matter. I'm different. I usually read the soundtrack or Mm. music that I'm not familiar with. Right. So that that you're not singing along. Yeah. Right. I can't do it without music as well because say I'm upstairs... That in my bed reading Adam's watching TV and you I can't snacking. do that either yeah. no I can't listen to podcasts while I'm reading if I'm reading I'm concentrating on reading and I don't mind having music on but even having the TV on distracts me from reading Yeah, I don't like lying on the settee and reading while I, your mum's watching Housewives or Anya's got bloody Disney on or something now I will get to only hear you once a week which is still great well I'm going to go and enjoy the rest of my day and hope you do the same Robert well that's a shame Robert we hope you're still listening and work hasn't made you stop that would be awful P.S. I'm thinking after I read Nightfall I'm going to go back and listen to those shows again and then pull the novel out and reread that. I reread the novel long ago before getting the trades back in college, and I've been out of college for nearly 16 years, so I think it deserves a reread. What do you think? Um, I thoroughly enjoyed Danny O'Neill's Nightwing novel. I actually think it holds up better as an, uh, a narrative in the novel than it does in the comics, because Danny O'Neill does a great job of streamlining it. But I do think we covered the novel. When we did the comics, didn't we? I think I reread the book for the, the comics. Novel. Yeah, the not Nightfall. the Nightwing novel. Not the Nightwing novel. Did I say Nightwing? You did. I meant Nightfall. I do apologise. Our next email is from Professor Allen. I am delighted to get an email from Professor Allen, who is host of the Quarterbin podcast, mm-hmm. co-host of Short Box Show Tech Case, and co-host of the Book Guys Show. And I did remember all of that completely, and didn't read it yeah. off his signature on his email. You don't believe that, do you? I don't know. Status quo changes is the title. Andy, Professor Allen. Professor Allen's got a really cool voice. Very soothing. It's very, you know when we mimic late night radio? Yeah. Well, he sounds like real (laughs) late night radio. His is the show you listen to when you're driving and it's raining at night when you're on your own. That's when you listen to he's the Paul podcast. Gambaccini. He's of the comic Paul Gambaccini. No, he's the whispering Bob Harris <laughs> of comic book podcasts. Fair enough. That's that's my opinion. He's got a really good voice. You talked recently about Superior Spider-Man. Professor Allen's email begins. Maybe not recently. <laughs> Maybe not recently. Not being a status quo change because it will not last. I wanted to push in a little further on your opinion of what does and does not constitute a status quo change. First, can we know when an event happens if it constitutes a status quo change? Michael's rolling his eyes. How much time has to pass before we can retroactively (laughs) determine whether a change has occurred based on whether it sticks or not? Well, first of all, I think we have to establish that the constant status quo change stuff was us taking the piss out of Marvel's constantly, like every other issue now. 
yeah. saying that this issue of Superior Spider-Man is a status quo change. So there was a certain element of piss-takery going on, wasn't there? I don't know, was there? Uh, yeah. Well, there was from my half. I presume you got that I was taking the piss, but okay. But these are very interesting questions yeah. that we as comic book fans have discussed, have we not? Normally off the air, yeah. but we'll, we'll discuss them now. First, can we know when an event happens if it constitutes a status quo change? Well, that depends. In comic books, I don't think anything matters anymore. Basically... In all seriousness, my idea of the status quo of, say, the Superman books is this. Superman, as a child, was rocketed from the exploding planet Krypton. He landed on Earth. He was adopted by the Kenton named Clark. He got a job at the Daily Planet and adopted the mantle of Superman. Everything else is icing. Okay. That's the status quo of Superman. Whether he's married, whether he's not married, whether he works at the Daily Bugle or the Daily Star, whether his boss is George Taylor or Perry White, all of that is just window dressing. The status quo of Superman is that. But what if Superman was working for the Daily Star for like five years? Mm-hmm. That would be the status quo. Yes, and but then, then when he, he went for the, the Daily, Daily Planet, Planet. that would be a status quo change. Exactly, Mom. But you're saying that like, <clears> it doesn't matter who no, he works for. Ultimately, in a... I was going to say a legacy character, but that means a different thing, doesn't it? In a, in a licensed character like Superman, the right. core elements of who he is, that's the status quo. Because we've been through so many different eras of Superman at this point. Eras where he was married, where he wasn't married, where he was working for the Daily Planet, where he was working for the Daily Star, where he wasn't working for either, he was so working for WGBS. Your argument <coughs> is that Superman's status quo has been exactly the same since his creation. Yeah. But it's not... No. But this is the point with comics. Do you see what I'm saying? Ultimately, right. the Superman status quo is that what I just put forth. And everything else has just been a story. Okay. Because even as we've just seen with the New 52, him being married wasn't sacrosanct. Right. They got rid of it. Okay. So that's my opinion but on what... at the time of his marriage... Yes. That was a status quo. Well, he did get... Do not preempt. Do not preempt Professor Allen. Right, okay. Okay, so that's my opinion on... Do you, do you disagree? Somewhat, yeah. Well, explain, elucidate well, upon your position. Superman has had several status quo changes. Even though his story is the same, it's always been a different status quo. Yeah, but in the grand fullness of the 75-year history of the character, none of those have stuck... Not one of them, except the working for the Daily Planet one. But even that right. went through a period where he was working at WGBS. I mean, he was working at the Planet as well, yeah. but he was primarily an on a TV news broadcaster and not a reporter. Right. So I am looking at the grand scheme. In the grand scheme of 75 years' worth of Superman comics, that, what I just said, is ultimately the status quo. Well, I'm looking at the grand scheme as well. I'm just pinpointing mm. different changes. Ah, well, okay, let us... Let us. Instead of a straight line like you're thinking it is, think of it as a curvy line. But it's still, the status quo is... He was rocketed from a distant planet. He grew up as Clark Kent, child to Jonathan and Martha. He was Superman to help the, the needy but and the, the oppressed. The implication of that is that he hasn't changed since he was created, when he has. Uh, arguably, his status quo hasn't. <laughs> he may be a completely different Superman now in the New 52 yeah. than he was from three years ago when it was not the New 52, that he was ten years before that when it was 
the post-crisis era was deep into happening, that it was 20 years before that when it was the Bronze Age. Right. But the status quo is that what I just said, is it not? Even in the New 52, okay. that is still his status quo origin status. That is a status quo. Okay, alright, fair enough. How much time has to pass before we can retroactively determine whether a change has occurred based on whether it sticks or not is an exceptional question. In real life... Right. When you leave high school, okay. that is a status quo change in your life. Right. You do not go back to high school. Ever. Okay. Unless you happen to get a job in your high school. But even yeah. then, that's a different thing. Yeah. Okay? So a status quo in real life is easy to determine. Okay. Is it not? The death of a loved one. Status quo change. They're not going to come back as a clone in real life. <laughs> Comics, however, do not have that. If you're not talking about creator-owned comics like Preacher, if Garth Ennis killed off Tulip in Preacher, which he did, and then he brought her back, <laughs> but if he'd done it and left her dead, right. she would have stayed dead forever. Because okay. no one but Garth Ennis ever wrote Preacher. Right. To use Superman again. Mm-hmm. Okay. How many characters in Superman have gone away? I can't think of any that have been killed and stayed dead that had the same impact of, say, Gwen Stacy. I mean, there was Adam Grant... That was quite important at the time it happened, but now Catherine Grant is a completely different character. Yeah. And probably doesn't even have a son, if she's even around in the New 52. I don't know if she is or not, because I don't read Superman anymore. Hmm. So, how long does it have to stay before you can determine whether it sticks is entirely dependent on whether the company keep that change. On, On the company. Yeah. Superman worked at WGBS for 15 years, more or less, give or take. You would, by any normal measure, consider that a permanent status quo change, would you not? At the time. No. Crisis on Infinite Earth whacked it all away. Well, that's it. So in the grand scheme of 75 years worth of Superman comics... Not a status quo change. But at the time it was. You're looking at it from hindsight. Yes, I am. But that's not what Professor Allen is asking. Professor Allen is actually asking how much time has to pass before it's determined to be a status quo change. So had you asked me this question in 1980, when he had been working at WGBS for 10 years at that point, nine years or something at that point, would you have said that was a status quo change? Well, you would have said yes. Because he's been working at WGBS for a decade at that point. There are probably a generation of Superman comics readers who grew up with him being a TV newscaster. But it was a status quo change because the crisis wiped it out. That exactly. was a change in status quo. So, but, the but you said it wasn't no, 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 change. But, no, no, no. When did I say that? When, I, when you asked me, this, was well, it? No, you, you said just no. said, how long do you have to wait? Which is Professor Allen's question. Right. And then you accuse me of looking at the bigger picture. But how else am I supposed to look at it? From the point of view where I am sitting in 2013, right. Clark Kent working at WGBS was not a status right. quo okay. change. What about now then? Yes. In 2013, mm-hmm. let's say the new 52. Yes. Let's concentrate on the entire. So bridge. let's say the costume. The status quo change. The costume. Let's take the costume. No, let's take everything. <laughs> Well, I would argue the status quo hasn't changed much in terms of Superman's... If we say that my opinion of the status quo of Superman is what I just said, and everyone else is... Everything else is ultimately window dressing. Okay. Okay? And they did. They wiped the marriage away. They got rid of it. So, ultimately, status quo changed... The status quo for Superman is what I just said. Right? Right. Okay. Some people will no doubt say, no, that's his origin. Yeah. But I'm arguing, for the sake of this argument, that it's the same thing. Okay. 
Okay. So your question is... Right. The wider DC universe... As it stands at the moment as in it stands at the October moment. of 2013... Yeah. Yeah. Was Flashpoint a status quo change from, well, pre-New 52 to New 52? As of this point in time, yeah. yes. All right. Because we are now not looking at it, as Professor Allen says, how long do we have to wait? Okay. We are not looking at it with the benefit of being able to say, well, Crisis and Infinite Earth happens in 1985 and wipes all that away. So, okay. ultimately, time is the arbiter of whether it is a status quo change. It's been 75 years' time. Yes. Well, Another 75 years' 72 time. 72 years' time. Yeah. Infinite, right? And and I, I go to visit you in your old folks' home. <laughs> Where I'm bionic. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, DC Comics is still the same. It's exactly the same as it was in Flashpoint. Except they beam them right to your eyeballs. Yeah, yeah, digitally exclusive day mm. one. Yeah. Will, will it still have been a status quo change? In that particular instance, I will have to confess that the New 52 was a status quo change. Yes. Okay, now what if they change it in... What if you do change it in another 75 years' time? Would the, would the Flashpoint still count as a, as a status quo change, or would it not have? Does Crisis on Infinite Earth count as a status quo change now? Yes. Why? Because if your argument about the New 52 is all the old stories are still there, mm. then there is still different status quos depending on crises and which stories you're reading. Right. Okay. I can see your point of view. Yeah. To me, though, it's all just stories. I've got to the point... No, honestly. I, <laughs> this is your back door. Yeah, I've got to the point in my life where it's all just stories. Right. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things anymore. DC are not publishing a Superman at the minute that I am interested in reading it about, right? Yeah. But I'm not bothered about it. Because they haven't for the past ten years. Yeah. So they will eventually get to a point where they probably do publish one that I'm interested in reading again. And that's yeah. fine. There are plenty of old issues that I've never read. And that's fine. So if the status quo at, Mar- at Marvel, at DC at the minute, is Superman is a little bit more whiny perhaps than usual, and he's dating Wonder Woman instead of Lois Lane, and the costume looks a little bit too armoury for Superman, that's fine. doesn't matter to me, because I'm not reading the book anymore. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, the status quo of Superman is still the status quo of Superman. But I don't know who he's banging at the minute. Is he still doing Wonder Woman? Yeah. Right. They've okay. got their own title now. Have they, what, like a proper married couple? Yeah, I think it's something like Fifty Shades of Kryptonite. I right, don't know. okay. So, how long does the change have to last for it to qualify, is an exceptional question. Would you argue, therefore, then, that the WGBS situation was a permanent status quo change? Lasted 15 years, dude. But it's not around anymore. Exact amount. So it wasn't permanent. The death of Gwen Stacy. Not permanent. Why? She's not back. She's still dead. But she has been back. No, she hasn't. Several stories. A clone of Gwen Stacy has been back. Gwen Stacy is dead. So One of the few people to right. remain dead. When you're looking at an ent- the, the bigger picture, mm. are you including, uh, say, Spider-Man, the bigger picture of Spider-Man, yes. are you just thinking of Amazing Spider-Man or one of the other books? Or are you including... I'm not including like, Ultimates. Are you including other stories, which were just miniseries? When did Gwen Stacy come back in a miniseries? Well, do you do you think it counts when they bring a character back for, say, Spider-Man Blue? No, because that was set in the past. But it was written in the at then present. But the story was set before she died. So you're looking at it as yeah. Story All right, move away from Superman. 
Superman has had many different permutations and end points, right? Okay. There is not a continual narrative throughout Superman's 75-year existence. Right. Right? Are we both in agreement on that? Yes. Okay. Spider-Man, there is a continual narrative. But is there? Yes. From Amazing Spider-Man 1 through to now, it is a continuous story. There are elements that have been swept under the carpet through continuity retcons, the death of Aunt May being the most obvious one. There are elements that have been brought back through mystical means, the death of Harry Osborn being another one. Right. Right? But the story of Peter Parker that began in Amazing Spider-Man 1 and ended in Amazing Spider-Man 700, see what I did there, is one long continuous narrative. So he is a much more interesting character to tackle this this subject of status quo with. Because with Superman you can say, well, the Golden Age lasted this long to this long. Yeah. And working at the Daily Star lasted this long to this long. So your argument is... But with Spider-Man... Depends on whether it's a continuous... Yes. Right, okay. Okay, so so with Superman it's much easier to say, well, no, none of that ultimately mattered because at at some point or another DC pressed the reset button. Yeah. They've done it a couple of times. The Bronze Age, you can argue, was a continuation of the Silver Age, but by and large, many elements of the Silver Age were ignored in the Bronze Age. They didn't actively press the reset button. But they just kind of ignored a lot of what had gone before. And they just used whatever they wanted to. So, but the, the, the idea was still the same. Okay. Whereas Spider-Man is one long continual narrative. I don't think we've actually answered his question. No, I don't think we it. can. I know, honestly, I don't think you can answer that. Because comics aren't like any other medium. Even James Bond yeah. in novels... I'm not talking... was a continuous story. I mean, Fleming played around with the timeline... Because Bond de-aged slightly as he became successful. What a lot of people forget, Casino Royale was Bond's last mission. Despite what the film may tell you, it wasn't his first mission as a double-O. He was being put out to pasture. Yeah. And when the series became successful, he de-aged him slightly, but he still kept him in his 40s. What was that? I completely forgot where I was going with that. Well, comics. But, yeah, but comics by their very nature, continue every month with different creative teams. James Bond has continued in novels under people that aren't Ian Fleming, but none of them have really done anything to move the story forward. They have just told another James Bond story. Yeah. No one has ever told the last James Bond story. Mm. And comics won't do that, because they're a continuous narrative. They'll carry on. Anyway, Professor Allen says, oh yeah, Spider-Man specifically. If Peter returns in one year, does Superior Spider-Man count? Two years, five years. How long does the superior era have to last? My understanding is that during the Clone Saga, it was Marvel Editorial's goal to keep Ben Riley as Spider-Man forever. Does that era count as a status quo change, even an end of not lasting forever? In retrospect, was the marriage a status quo change? It only lasted a few decades. Enjoy your conversations and coverage. Keep up the good work, Professor Allen. Excellent questions. This was going to be a short email section. Yeah. And then I read this email. <laughs> Why couldn't it be? You guys suck. All right, okay. If Peter... I maintain, right now, right here, on this show, Superior Spider-Man is not a a status quo change. As of October 2013, Yes. It's a story. Peter Parker will be back. But as of October 2013... No, it's a story. Was Jean-Paul Valley a status quo change? It's another one of those, at the time... Was Reign of the Supermen a status quo change? Yes. Why? Because all four of those Supermen are still around now. But Superman's around now as well. 
Doesn't matter. He was dead. All four Supermen are around as well. But they were replacements for him. But the fact that he was dead was just a story. So the Supermen themselves. Exactly. Like so Reign of the Supermen was a story. <laughs> Superman did not stay dead. Which would well, have you, been a story. The question int- wasn't the same. No, 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 no. no. Introducing new characters. Right is not the same thing. Because new characters come and go all the time. Various points in Spider-Man's history, there have been different supporting casts. Some of them have fell by the wayside. Yeah. Some of them have stuck around. That's not a status quo change. Status quo change is Gwen Stacy dying. A status quo change is, is an immediate event that impacts upon the life of the character and the character is never the same again. Okay. Okay. So, Reign of the Superman. Status quo change or storyline? The lives were never the same again. Storyline. <laughs> Nightfall. Story. Storyline. At any point reading Nightfall. I love Nightfall. We've right. spent many, many episodes covering it. But did you ever, when reading that story, think Jean Paul Valley's going to be Batman forever? No, but no, not because of the story, but because of the money. <laughs> well. Bruce Wayne is Batman sells. See, that's, it's taking that out of it. I'm saying it doesn't matter when Peter returns, one year, two year, five years. Superior Spider-Man is a story. It's a good story. It's a thoroughly enjoyable story, and I'm enjoying reading it. It's a pretty long story if it's five years until he returns. Don't matter. How long was Reign of the Superman? That was two years, wasn't it? Two or three years? How long was Nightfall? Wasn't that two or three years, all told? It felt like two or three years. (laughs) Uh, Yes, Professor, you are correct. When the Clone Saga ended, Peter Parker and Murray Jane were sent off into the sunset to have their child. Yeah. Ben Riley was supposed to be Spider-Man forevermore Stasis at that point. Change. Status quo change. Right. Yes. Peter Parker coming back. Status quo change. Yes. I would... I would. It pains me. I don't actually <laughs> agree with it. But I would say, all right, if you were to say that was a status quo change, then I would half-heartedly agree with <laughs> you. Because, yes, the point of that was to keep Ben Riley as Spider-Man from that point on forever. it is a status quo change when the editorial point of the story is to do something that lasts forever, even if it doesn't. Even if it doesn't. Yeah, that's actually quite a good definition. Despite what Wacker and Slot are saying, I refuse to believe that they don't have an ending to this superior Spider-Man story. Right, so the Peter Parker-Ben Riley stuff, you're okay with them saying... They had an ending, but not for the... No, no, no. I was okay with them saying they had an ending because, as far as I was concerned, that was a good ending for Peter Parker. Right. In my head... But him dying isn't a good ending. No. Not dying in the way that he died, no. That's not a heroic ending. It's a good story. It has to be a heroic ending. Peter Parker deserves a heroic ending. That's what he deserves, not what he can get. And also, I would accept a heroic ending being he retires and gives it all up to look after his children, which is what right. he did in the Clone Saga. It's one of the reasons I think Star Trek but Generation then, sucks ass. But then that's your belief. No. That's the problem with you, not the story. No, it's the definition of heroic storytelling. You can't have a damp squib ending to your hero. Ever. Why not? Name one that's worked. Name one superhero or hero of any kind of fiction who has gone out a punk and it's worked. I'm sure there are some. No. Sherlock Holmes dies going over Reichenbach Falls with Professor Moriarty. Yes, he comes back later, but he dies saving the world from his arch-enemy. Superman dies protecting Metropolis from Doomsday. Captain Marvel. Which Captain? Captain Marvel dies of cancer. There you go. That's not going out like a punk, dude. And he didn't (sighs) give in. Right. Right until the end. Um, 
Going out like a punk is Hawkeye. Not like this. There go, you go then. Going out like a punk is diving for the TV remote and the bridge falling on you. <laughs> going out like a punk is not a heroic ending. But it doesn't have to be. Yes, it does. This is there are certain archetypical characters who have to have heroic endings, or at the very least, a satisfying ending. So that's why Spider-Man works. Mm-hmm. Because Peter Parker's luck means that even though he might deserve one, he doesn't get one. Mm-hmm. That's the luck. No. This is your belief again. No, okay, well, anyway, we're, we're getting off the topic. So, all right, I would have to begrudgingly concede the Ben Riley thing was a status quo change. But okay. all of this is just semantics. It's all just <laughs> our story. This is all the stuff we just like talking about as comic book fans. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. In 20 years' time, there will still be a Spider-Man in some form or another. And it will probably be Peter Parker. There will still be a Batman. It'll probably be Bruce Wayne. There will still be a Superman. It'll probably be Clark Kent. None of this will ultimately matter. They're all just stories. Well, Fun depend, stories. Depending on what leap year you're on, it might be Dick Grayson. It might Batman. be Dick Grayson. See, I've, I'm always like, Batman's not a legacy character. And yet, every time they've done it with him, I've kind of liked it. I love Batman Beyond. Yeah. Even though there's a part of it that's like, damn it, Batman's not a legacy character. And whenever Dick Grayson's Batman, I'm like, yeah, cool. <laughs> but I'm, I like Dick. Yeah. That never fails to make you laugh. <laughs> I don't know that we've answered your question because I don't think there is an answer in sequential comics. I'd like to see here you and Emily discuss this, young Mr. Professor Allen, on your show to see what you think. But ultimately I think it doesn't matter because they're all just stories. Preacher's a story. Yes, but Preacher is a finite story by one creative team. It's not a licensed comic. What did Warren Ellis used to call them? He used to call them something derogatory and I can't remember what it was. Floppies. No corporate comics or something uh, like that something like that I don't he's remember not, he's not wrong though is he no he isn't wrong it's just the tone of it was, was rather derogatory for somebody who makes his living in that industry but it's, it's Warren Ellis though although uh, I can't remember what I'm reading at the minute Steve Lacey recommended it to me what's it called it's really really good Oh, the Warren Ellis Marvel comic I know what you mean yeah. Exiles no 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 Next Wave yeah it's actually funny as hell <laughs> Anyway, we're going to have to move on there. I was I was hoping to that to be a short email section. Alas, it was not to be. I don't think we answered your question, but we gave it a go. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who emailed in this week. There are more emails to come. We will get on with them. Uh, but we've got to get back to uh, bestest Batman story ever after this break. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. And we're back. Yes, we are. Welcome back to part two of our trawl through our favourite Batman stories. The first half of this show was last week, so if you haven't already, go and check it out. 
Before we begin part two, I want to talk about a boot that I picked, read, made notes about, but then after I slept on it, I kind of felt like, mm, nah, this isn't really one of my favourites after all. Detective Comics issue 567, The Night of Thanks But No Thanks, was cover dated October 1986 and was written by Harlan Ellison with art by Gene Colan and Robert Smith, presumably not the lead singer of The Cure. It was a simple story in which the Batman spends the night patrolling the seedy streets of Gotham City only to find out that this is one night where the Batman isn't needed. That was it. As I reread it, though, I realised it was a memorable issue, rather than it being a particularly good issue. And to be brutally honest, there are elements of this story where the Batman feels like he's been written dreadfully out of character, making jokes like an erstwhile Silver Age daredevil, groaning that Gotham has no crime, and complaining to Alfred that a night where Gotham doesn't need him is the worst night of my life. It didn't feel like Batman to me, and by the time we'd reached the scene where Batman ruins an undercover cop's drug bust and, presumably, his long-developed deep cover, a scene which didn't portray Batman as human, just inept, I decided this was very much a case of memory cheating. I did get a chuckle out of the Meanwhile column where Dick Giordano said it was company policy to not publish more comics than the market could withstand, so I looked this up. In the month that this comic was published, cover dated October of 1986, DC published 42 comics, two of which were Batman and two of which were Superman. There was one special, two annuals and three limited series, meaning there were only 36 regular series published by DC this month. Information thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. I just throw that out there with no comment whatsoever about the new 52 or the recent Villains Month. Villains Month in particular. Yeah, flooding the market with books that we can't possibly hope to afford all of them off. Marvel do the same. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying Marvel are blameless and in any way whatsoever. Every comic company I just thought it was amusing that Dick Giordano said it was company policy to not flood the market with books that they didn't think people could afford. In Marvel. marked contrast to now. Markets change. True that. Not disagreeing with you. What was interesting about this issue of Detective Comics, even though I rejected it, was how it was very much an unusual and confusing time for readers. For all intents and purposes, Detective Comics issue 567 was the last pre-crisis issue of Detective Comics. The next issue was a Legends tie-in, and that supposedly is post-crisis, although the Jason Todd in that miniseries is clearly the pre-crisis version rather than the post-crisis delinquent. However, Mike W. Barr and Alan Davis's run on Detective, which followed, in which Catwoman knew Batman was Bruce Wayne and was still wearing her purple and green outfit, wasn't post-crisis at all. Then year two happens, which is tonally completely different from year one, not helped by the changing artists from Alan Davis and Paul Neary to Todd McFarlane halfway through. Mike W. Barr leaves to be replaced by Alan Grant, John Wagner and Norm Bray Fogel, and pretty soon after that, all of the Barr-Davis run is consigned to the never-happened pre-crisis history bin. This all came about because the Batman didn't have a Ground Zero reboot like Superman and Wonder Woman, leaving readers more confused than ever. But before we get to that era of stories, of which we have picked a few, mm-hmm. we kick off tonight proper with my next pick, first pick of the evening, which is in a plastic bag, which I know will stun many long-time listeners. It's in a plastic bag because I took it to work with me to read one dinner time to make the notes. I've so. noticed every single issue we cover these past two weeks is in a bag. Every single issue came to work with me because I, I read them in my dinner hours Fair to enough. save some time. It's all digital now, man. I didn't have this issue as digital, unfortunately, so I had to read it. I, I like comics, damn it! 
I'm old-fashioned in many ways. As we mentioned last week, we're not doing this as a countdown, so we're not doing 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, Thunderbirds, I'll go. It's whatever. Um, I'm going in publication order. Michael is almost in publication order, lads, because I screwed up the copy and pasted it. Imagine if we counted down, though. Yeah. 12, 11, <laughs> that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? My first pick this week is The Brave and the Bold, issue 182, cover dated January 1982. The cover by Jim Aparo shows the old Batmobile, the one with the tail fins and the bat head, roaring at Batman, Batwoman and Robin, whilst the floaty head of Dr. Hugo Strange hovers over the speeding vehicle. The comic claims it is starring Batman and Robin, the ex-boy wonder, and he's wearing rather fetching yellow leggings and green boots. I can't remember if I'd read the Death of Hugo Strange story at this point. I think I have, because bear in mind, although I bought this off the shelf, it may or not have been when it came out. But I think that was the reason for buying it. Plus, I wanted to know what was going on with Robin's costume. I like Batman's dance. Bat dance! He looks like he's about to break into an Elvis burger <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I think that's perfectly fine for Batman to be going, Oh, look at me body popping! As the Batmobile hurls itself at me. A honk, a honk, a burning rubber. I'm, I, you've got to feel sorry for whoever does end up on the sharp end of the, the bat hood. Haven't you? Going right up his bat ass. Going right up his bat ass, yes. Interlude on Earth 2 was written by Alan Brennett with art by Jim Aparo, colours by Carl Gafford and edited by Jick Giorgiano. Jig Giordano! Dick Giordano. Jig Giordano. Jig Giordano. Yeah. What well, did you like that cover, Michael? Yeah, yeah. It's alright then. With a dance makes it funny, yeah. <laughs> the bat dance makes it funny too. It's a cool car. It is a very cool car, yeah. When the long-thought deceased Hugo Strange causes unprecedented electrical storms to steal Starman's control rod, the Robin of Earth-2 investigates. He's joined by a dimensionally lost Batman from Earth-1, and Robin fills him in on the Hugo Strange situation, and the two agree to work together, despite Robin's reticence. Teaming up with Kathy Kane, the original Batwoman, the terrific trio prevent death by a mock Batmobile, but when Robin finds evidence that this was in fact not Urzatz, they fly off to the Bat cave thanks to three whirly bat helicopters Batman pulled from the Batmobile. After surviving attacks from the giant dinosaur and Batman robots, a gnarled and broken Hugo Strange appears out of the shadows clutching the cosmic rod. Batman quickly deduces that Strange is all bluster and he really wants to die rather than live in this broken body, a death by cop situation, but Batman refuses to comply. Strange turns the cosmic rod on himself, committing suicide. Kathy makes her peace with the Batman, albeit not her Batman, and Robin acknowledges that it was difficult seeing him alive and vital again. Starman uses the cosmic control rod to send the Batman back home to Earth-1 in the shadow of Bruce Wayne's grave. Um, I thought this was a really good issue. Did you like this one? Yeah, well, I'm always up for a multiverse team-up, even with yellow pants. <laughs> and especially when it includes a fight with a T-Rex. Mm. Um, it was also pretty cool to see uh, this Batwoman. Um, their relationship with Batman was touched upon several times in Morrison's run and it was cool seeing the proper her in action. I thought you were going to say her and Batman touched each other a lot. They did, but it was all in silhouettes. <laughs> I thought that's where you were going with that. Uh, 
I loved this issue as a kid, as it did introduce me to the concept of Earth 2. And here it was a world where the Batman was dead and Robin had grown up. I did wonder, even as a wee tyke, why Dick wasn't now the Batman, as I really didn't like the yellow leggings look. Still don't. But the idea of a parallel dimension has always intrigued me. To be honest, this was the only story I picked that didn't hold up quite as well for me as an adult. There were too many little things that bugged me rereading it that I didn't give any thought to as a kid. Such as, why would the Batman have three whirly bats in the boot of the Batmobile? I could buy two. One for Batman and one for Robin. Makes perfect sense. But three just because Batwoman was there seemed a little bit too coincidental. Batgirl. Was there an Earth One Batgirl? I'm assuming so. Was there? I'd have to take your word for it. I don't know enough about oh, Earth, about Earth Ace, Two to, to say. Oh, Ace the Bathound has his own whirly bat. Actually, in the 60s, that way, that is entirely if, possible. If the Bathound can go out and fight criminals, I have no He can certainly have a whirly bat. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, fair enough, yeah, we'll put that one to one side. Ace the Bat-Hound has his own worldly bat. <laughs> Robin spots a plaque with his initials inscribed on it in the Batmobile that indicates this is the real deal, but he wrote DG. Surely he would have put RG. Richard. Yeah. Right. As his, his initials would be Richard Grayson, not Maybe because he Grayson. calls himself Dick. Alright, fair enough. He's not the only one that calls him a dick in those pants. Still, one element that completely passed him by as a kid was the right to die subtext and the death by cop suicide play. And the character interrelations were well handled with Robin resenting the Batman for not being his Batman and Kathy's feelings of unrequited love also being brought to the fore. The Batman himself was also spooked seeing his own grave and was not a fan of civilians being terrified of him. How times change. The manner of traversing between Earth seemed like somebody had been watching the mirror mirror episode of Star Trek, but this was still a memorable story that introduced me to one of the fundamental differences between the Marvel and DC Universe. The art was pretty good, Jim Aparo, and it made the grade purely on a nostalgic level. Uh, a couple of loose notes about this issue. There is an art supply shop in Gotham on Earth 2 called Sprang and Robinson's, which I did like. I thought that was a nice touch. Uh, but the final note from this is I really cannot wrap my head around vigilantes who prowl the streets at night wearing bright yellow. It's better than the, the the green trunks. Well, he's wearing green trunks as well as yellow leggings. Well, at least he's going to be warm during the winters now. Dick Grayson is colourblind. No wonder his worst enemy is Crazy Quilt. <laughs> Come on. I mean, wasn't there a Brave and the Bold episode where Yellow Pants did fight Crazy Quilt? There, there was an episode of Brave and the Bold with Crazy Quilt in it. I think I'll mention that later on. Yeah. The Colour of Truth, was it called? I don't know. I'm pretty sure it had Yellow Pants in it. I can't remember. I think it was just normal Robin. I don't remember. Anyway. Uh, my first pick of the show is from uh, Batman Legends of the Dark Knight. And here it is. Uh, the Halloween special number one, uh, which was cover dated December 93. Obviously came out in October because it's not like, you know, our TV, which shows Christmas <laughs> episodes in the middle of summer. <laughs> in the, the graphic novel Haunted Nights. Mm. The cover is an abstract pumpkin thing. Yeah. The Batman's logo carved into its teeth. It's a great idea of Halloween and we may have to steal that. Quite a spooky, scary cover by Tim Sale. Part two, because each part of the special had its own cover. Part two has a cover of a pterodactyl head with the bat signal for eyes. Uh, it's it's not the best one. And issue three has a cover of a cracked skull wearing the bat mask. 
I wonder if in the original incarnation this was a three-part Legends of the Dark Knight, wasn't it? Yeah. And then they reworked it to be a one-shot. I wonder if that's where the, the chapter breaks, the issue breaks would have been. Probably, because it is a triple-sized yeah. story. So, yeah, that may be where the issues would have ended. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Batman is on the search for Jonathan Crane. For the past week, Dr. Crane, a.k.a. the Skurkerl, has been blowing up electric relay stations in select parts of Gotham and looting them. Tonight is the night that Batman finally captures him and takes him down. He hands the Skurkerl over to Commissioner Gordon and returns to Wayne Manor. That night, Bruce is hosting a costume party, and he spots a woman he doesn't know. As he dances with her, Skurkrow scurs the guards and the driver of his van into crashing the armoured car into the wall, freeing him. The woman's dogs create fuss near Bruce's clock, the entrance to the Batcave, and Alfred tells Bruce, and after Alfred tells Bruce the bat signal is on, Bruce leaves. In the time it takes Batman to respond, Skurkrow has already blown up another relay. He takes down two crooks from robbing a store, but one of them cuts him, making him realise how tired he is. Bruce stumbles home and sleeps. He is woken by the woman he met earlier, Gillian Maxwell. That night, Batman scowls on a gargoyle in the rain. <laughs> Situation normal, then. <laughs> yeah. When he's attacked by a flock of crows. He tries to escape and plummets to the ground, barely holding on to his back grapple. As he is surrounded by the crows, he remembers his first proper conversation with Gillian earlier that day, and the rest of the day about the town. After escaping from the crows, he follows them back to Skurkrow's hideout, but he escapes and runs into a maze. Batman follows and loses him, before cutting himself on poisonous thorns. Meanwhile, Alfred discovers Gillian in Bruce's room, saying that Bruce asked her to wait for him, despite him saying nothing about it to Alfred. Believing that something is wrong with Gillian, Alfred searches for her face in several government agencies before receiving an answer as to who she is. As he finds out, Bruce returns on the Batmobile. Intending to tell Bruce who Gillian is, he waits for him to get out of the car. However, he sees Bruce cut up and knocked out. In his unconscious state, Bruce remembers what happened. However, his dream does not truly reflect what actually did happen. Batman followed Skurko into a church. Not a church, a maze. A maze in a church. Skurkrow leads him up to the front, to a wedding. Batman's. Waiting for him is Gillian. She tells him that he made a choice to be with her, but he turns away. And comes to, climbing the thorns in the maze with his costume tied around his hands. He wakes up in bed, with Alfred tending to him. Gillian is there too, and Bruce asks Alfred to leave the two. Bruce tells Gillian he's thinking of taking some time off and asks her to spend time with him. As they kiss, Bruce sees the bat signal in the night sky, but ignores it. Gordon and Rene Montoyas stop waiting and turn off the signal. As Montoya leaves, Gordon stays and is attacked by the Scarecrow. Bruce asks Alfred to pack him a suitcase for a train journey that he and Gillian will be on when it leaves later that night. Alfred gives him the information he has on her and leaves. Looking out of the window, Bruce sees the signal turned into a smiley face by the Scarecrow and decides to throw away his chance at happiness as he heads to the signal. Batman finds a drugged Montoya who sings a nursery rhyme, leading him to the clock tower where he saves Gordon. He chases the fleeing Skurkrow and takes him down with a few brutal poundings. Later, Gillian approaches Wayne Manor until Alfred confronts her with several of her other aliases and all of her late rich husbands, who died mysteriously. Gillian slaps him and storms off. Bruce deletes the information on her 
and decides that being Batman was was a choice, despite him always believing it wasn't. Being Batman means that some of Bruce's desires go unfulfilled, but many more are satisfied. Being Batman was a good choice. Audrey Margaret is sunbathing. In three days, she'll marry one of Brazil's wealthiest men. In two weeks, he'll be killed in a car explosion. She'll say it was the drug lords. She's already practicing it in Spanish. At least, that would have happened if a man hadn't passed her a note of a bat drawn around the words, Confess. Ooh, good ending, that. Yeah. I like that ending a great deal. Uh, this is the first and arguably best of the Halloween specials by Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb started life as a regular Legend of the Dark Knight story arc before being released as this one-off special. Ultimately led to two sequels, two long-form Batman stories, The Long Halloween and Dark Victory, and a Catwoman spin-off, When in Rome. I think this is the best of the three initial tales, telling as it does a complete and relatively new story, rather than being a retelling of A Christmas Carol or a reworking of Alice in Wonderland like the third and second editions respectively. I like that the story began in media res, with very little backstory given. The Scarecrow is loose, the Batman is out to stop him. What else do you need to know? It's obviously a Batman early in his career as he makes a few mistakes, and Gordon tries to ask him out for dinner with he and his wife in a very uncomfortable yet funny scene. By and large, although it takes up the majority of the story, the Batman search for the Scarecrow is ultimately a subplot, as the main focus of the issue is Gillian Maxwell. Note the American spelling of Gillian with a J. A femme fatale who has her sights set on Bruce. Notably, though, Gillian gets through to Bruce, and it's Alfred who finds out she's a gold digger, whose rich husbands have all died mysteriously only a few weeks into the marriage. Bruce is too wrapped up in her to notice and losing his focus. Whilst this is a great story beat, it's an idea that can only work in the very early days of Batman's career. Bruce would have sniffed her out in an instant in current continuity, but here we can perhaps accept that his experience led him to be more careful. Gillian's comeuppance at the end, a simple note with a bat on it delivered to her on a breach in Brazil with the word confess, is well handled and satisfying. Loeb's dialogue is very good, especially in the Gillian-Bruce scenes, and there is something about Alfred that brings out the best in various writers. The art by Tim Sale is, as usual, excellent, and there are some lovely little touches. The masquerade party at Wayne Manor has appearances by Calvin and Hobbes, Milk and Cheese, Madman, Cerberus the Aardvark, the Tin Man, Wally, Tick and Tock, and the original Hawkeye. And Bone. And Bone, yes. The Skirker is suitably scurry, and an obvious influence on his portrayal in Batman Begins, and Gillian's costume, a pair of glasses, is a nice nod to Clark Kent. I also like the Skirker adding a couple of eyes to the bat signal. All told, an excellent choice, and one I'm surprised that I didn't come up with myself. Mm. So, well done. Well, um, Logan Sale's Long Halloween and Dark Victory have always been my favourite bat stories, or some of them with Tim's art style always being what I think of when I hear Batman and Loeb never forgetting the detective part of Dark Knight Detective, with his stories being whodunits. Mm. But um, being unable to cover any of those series, I chose to do this special, which showcased all of the best things about those series. The dark art style, the detective, the mysterious and terrifying villains. And to be honest, this is the only, of the, the only one of these Halloween specials that I've read. You never read the other two? Nope. The other two aren't awful, by any means. They're both very entertaining. Yeah. But the second one's a Mad Hatter riff on Alice in Wonderland, which I, I don't remember if it was new at the time this was published, Yeah. but Batman the Animated Series did exactly the same thing with the Mad Hatter. Yeah. And I don't know if the two of them were independent of each other, or if one influenced the other, or whatever, 
but it just reading it now it just feels a bit samey it feels too much like that episode of the animated series mm. I don't know which came first because I've not looked up the date but yeah for some reason or other this was the only one I've read and the third one is it's just a Christmas carol yeah. set at Halloween yeah. that's it that's all it is it's again it's good because a Christmas carol is good but this is the best of the three of them because this is a wholly original story yeah and I did love Gillian Maxwell as the femme fatale she was quite quite brilliant wasn't she yeah well one of the things about this is you can see how much of it came into other stories like Gillian was like Jezebel Jet yeah all the Scarecrow stuff being in Batman Begins yeah, well, the the Batman Begins people have said that Jeff Loeb's work was a heavy influence on Batman Begins. Yeah. I think it was, wasn't it the long Halloween they gave to Christian Bale to say, would you be interested in doing Batman? And he said, Batman? And then they gave him the long Halloween. And apparently he came back the day after having read it all overnight saying, if we do this, I want to do it. Yeah. So but they did do that. But they did, there's bits of the long Halloween in all three of Chris Nolan's movies. It's a shame none of them are any good. Batman Begins is great. <laughs> Batman Begins does not hold up the rest of the trilogy. Doesn't matter. As a single independent entity, Batman Begins is fantastic. And I will not have a word said against it. I'm sure if they did a good job of adapting The Long Halloween, it would have been great. If they'd have done a good job of adapting The Long Halloween, that would have been better. The only problem is adaptations. The adaptation wouldn't have been any good. Because right. it's an adaptation. Adaptations that are hardly ever any good. Could they have pulled off all those villains in one film? No. Right, see, that's a Not shame. the first one, anyway. No. Maybe they should have done that as the sequel. Maybe they should have done a literal adaptation of The Long Halloween and Doubt of Victory as the two sequels. Yeah. That would have been quite good. Even if it was a crappy adaptation of Doubt of Victory, it's all better than Doubt and High Rising. There is a page in this that is Batman falling. And the panels start small and go gradually yeah. wider as they go along. I'm convinced that's a Neil Adams homage. And I could not for the life of me find it. And I leafed through tons of those graphic novels up on my bookshelf. Yeah. And I could not find it for the life of me. It may have even been a dead man originally. Not a Batman. But I'm oh, yeah. sure that it's a Neil, Ob- a Neil Adams homage. But I could not for the life of me find out what issue it came from. A couple of other notes on this issue. The trade paperback calls this story Fears. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics calls it Choices. The only thing approximating a title in the story itself is all hell breaks loose. So, maybe it's like the Joker's origin, it's a multiple choice kind of deal. Yeah. Um, I did think it was pretty neat that another story you picked that we'll get to later also concerns itself with Gotham's power grid. Yeah. I like that there's some thematic links with all these <laughs> favourites, even if they're unintentional. Yeah, you, you think we planned it. You'd think that we planned it, but we didn't. But we didn't. <laughs> It's just called dumb luck, <laughs> if that all works out. My next pick is cover dated August 1983, and has a cover by designer extraordinaire Ed Hannigan. The Riddler, standing before a treasure chest of loot, hurls it into the sky, proclaiming, Riddle me this! Who says crime doesn't pay? Behind, holding two unconscious thugs, one in each hand, is the Batman, who is saying, I do. How the Batman's cape is swinging to the right as if blown by a gust of wind when they are indoors is probably better off not being thought about. But I thought that was an absolutely stunning cover. Because as the story says, they're on a they're on a TV show set, so maybe they have fans. Possible. Good, good no prize. <laughs> I'm having it. Excellent. 
Uh, Hannigan designed a number of exceptionally memorable covers for Marvel and DC in the early 80s, some almost 3D, and he was always experimenting with the form. Here, the shadow of the bat falls over the walls and becomes part of the logo, a masterful design choice by Hannigan, and uh, he would play around with logos to great effect on other covers that he produced, particularly Batman issue 370 and 367, and Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man issues 64, 66, and 69. Cover thoughts? It gets the job done. (laughs) In that it is the cover to the comic? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I love it. I thought it was great. I like the Bat logo. Yeah. I I love what he's done with that. Excellent job. Full, full... Look it up on Mike's Amazing World, Batman 362, because it's great. When Riddled by the Riddler was written by Doug Mensch, penciled by Don Newton, inked by Alfredo Alcala, lettered by Ben Oda, coloured by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Len Wein. Bat signal flashes against the dark night sky, a summons to police HQ for the Batman. Harvey Bullock, at the behest of Mer Hill, in an effort to discredit Commissioner Gordon, is already there, and the Batman quickly sends Bullock packing. He and Gordon analyse and deduce the Riddler's latest clue, but its simplicity makes both men feel it's too obvious. Bullock, listening at the door, thinks this is his chance to outwit them both. Arriving at the location deduced from the riddle, the Mother Goose Amusement Park, the Batman prowls the shadows only to be attacked by Humpty Dumpty. Inside this perfidious trap, the Riddler, armed with a machine gun, opens fire on the cowled crime fighter. The Batman avoids this attack, but falls for another as the Riddler pushes him off a giant shoe and makes his getaway. At least, muses the Batman, he prevented the Riddler from thieving the box office receipts. An approaching guard tells Batman there were no box office receipts to steal. The park is closed for winter. Perplexed, the Batman returns to HQ, where Bullock is trying to puzzle out the riddle himself, which alas just leaves him even more dumbfounded. Startled by the return of Batman, Bullock drops the clue, an egg, revealing another clue inside. Gordon and the Batman quickly piece it all together, leaving Bullock's head reeling and sending the Batman to the Paradise Theatre, where a taping of the quiz show called Enigma is taking place. At the theatre, the Riddler makes his play, retrieving a gun he stashed earlier, and makes away with the prize money just as the Batman arrives. He hurls a batarang at the money bag, cutting it and spilling the loot all over the floor. The Riddler jumps on a bus to escape, but the Batman leaps on Gordon's squad car and the heat is on. Gordon paces the bus and the Batman leaps on it. Riddling the roof with bullets allows the Batman to place a few gas pellets through the holes, and as the Riddler disembarks, the Batman literally kicks his ass, placing him in the custody of the arriving policemen. Oh, I thought this was quite a fun issue. It's a grand issue. Well, I like Riddler stories because I like working out the riddles alongside the characters. Hmm. Even though they're frequently ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the dialogue didn't seem like Doug Mensch from the stuff we covered in the Knights trilogy. It, this was better. Do you think? Yes. I thought the night Dialogue-wise... I thought the night stuff was better. Okay, fair enough. I, I found Harvey Bullock to be really unlikable. Now we have yeah, our Harvey Bullock. He is a completely different Harvey Bullock pre-crisis, yeah. isn't he? It's hard to imagine at the time Harvey Bullock was a plant by Mer Hill to discredit Commissioner Gordon. And ultimately Bullock learned some measure of respect for Gordon. Post-crisis, he's just a slobby cop. Maybe he was occasionally on the take... Yeah. But he becomes a good cop working with Commissioner Garden. And he is a much more likeable slob 
post-crisis than he is beforehand, doesn't he? Yeah, I could see right. how this bullock would be slightly confusing to you, because you'd be like, what? Yeah. This isn't bullock. So, fair enough. Well, I did like the ending, though, where they terrified him by just doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought this was brilliant, oh, hence I wouldn't have picked it. Yeah. Would I? I thought it was a bag of poo. At the time this saw print, the Bat Books were going through a transition. Jerry Conway had just departed, setting up a new Robin on his way out the door, and Doug Mench had taken over. And he really embraced the template set up by Conway of having the two main Bat Books of the time, this and Detective Comics, essentially play as one bi-weekly book. This story, taking place during the whole Nook Turn Tries to Adopt Jason Todd story arc, was a nice little interlude. The story itself could play out as an episode of the TV show, with the caveat that Gordon is portrayed as a competent officer, and as with every line the Riddler utters, the reader can't help but hear Frank Gorshin, and the Riddler does in fact wear Gorshin's TV three-piece suit. But this Riddler is a lot more deadly, opening fire indiscriminately in a packed TV studio. There are some good puns, the Riddler gets the job riddling wine, preventing it from corking whilst plotting his return, and he turns the roof into a sieve, another word for sieve being riddle. And the actual riddles are every bit as ridiculous, riddle, ridiculous as they need to be. Did you like that? That was... <laughs> was that terrible? <laughs> Even you straight. <laughs> Even I struggle to make that bad gag. <laughs> this issue even ends with Batman making a joke. Yeah. At the Riddler's expense. When riddled by the Riddler on the rebus, be sure to take your nose filters. It saves a lot of fuss. Michael's marvelling at the fact that I did that from memory. I don't have the issue <laughs> open at that page. Yeah. Uh, the art is gorgeous. Don Newton wasn't just a Neil Adams clone bringing his own style to the story. And Alfredo Alcala is a marvellous inker bringing a heavy black line to the inks and using lots of shadows. Perfect for the Batman. And for a long time, Newton and Alcala were my favourite Batman artists. Kudos especially to the Mother Goose Amusement Park, which is all drawn in black shadows and is really quite scurry, rather than the silly set piece it could have been. Mench brings a lot of fun to the story, supplies given his 90s back tales and the Bullock subplot is wrapped up as well with his and Merhill's plan to discredit Gordon being thrown out of court do you like the art of this one? yeah I, for a while New, Don Newton and Alfredo Alcala were my favourite Batman artists because mm. they had a run on Detective at this point that I just thought was just fantastic absolutely magnificent uh, this was a golden age for DC for me as a reader they'd started using this newer paper stock that was more vibrant and made the art look really good, but wasn't slick like comics paper is today. It was heavier, giving the comics some weight so it didn't feel flimsy, and the cover was of a completely different paper, unlike Marvel and Image today. In fact, this feels and looks a lot better than many current comics. In addition, there was a two-page letters page, a Dick Giordano Meanwhile column, as well as a 23-page story. All for 25 pennies. Bargain. Yeah. There's also a full-page ad for Batman and the Outsiders. Was that any good? Batman and the Outsiders? Yeah, I liked it. Last week, I said that I chose two stories about two characters who were inspired by Batman and left you waiting an entire week for you to find out who it was, which I'm sure was a riveting <laughs> wait. You really? That's what you think they were doing, doing for a week? Yeah. What was Michael's second choice? <laughs> I need to know now! Well, if they're anything like me... <laughs> And so I chose Batman issue 12, which came out uh, in October 2012. 
Yeah, it's got a cover by Greg Capullo of the Batman being hit by lightning stood in a giant bullseye. Reminds me of those old It Tickles Superman covers. It's a power switch button. It is. The power icon, yeah. You're absolutely right. Uh, It's effectively coloured, with the cape being all white against a black background, which makes it stand out. Brian Hitch did a variant, which looks weirdly disproportionate, and the other variants, of which there were two, were a negative and a black and white version. It's not Capullo's best cover, and somebody scribbled on it. Someone has indeed. (laughs) (laughs) To think I queued in line for someone to scribble on it like that. Yeah, I know. Is that Becky Cloonan's signature? Yeah. That cover reminds me of Tron. It does a bit. It does look like Tron. Very good. Not Capullo's best, but the the colouring of it is very good. It's Mm. all blacks and blues and whites, isn't it? Yeah. So, third is. Ghost in the Machine was written by Scott Snyder and co-writer James Tinian IV, and has art by Becky Cloonan and Andy Clark. Harper Rowe is being dressed by her brother, Cullen, for Bruce Wayne's charity gala when she notices a cut on his arm. He brushes it off, saying that the ones who gave it in will soon get bored. The event is to show how the how the Narrows neighbourhood will be updated for those living there, and so Harper was invited as she would be affected. At the event, Harper steals cakes and food and places them in her backpack before Alfred interrupts and tells her to try the brownies. When Harper returns home, she finds Cullen crouching in a wrecked room, beaten with a rather derogative word shaven into his hair, and so Harper comforts him and does the same to her own hair. Whilst returning from a walk, the two bump into the guys who beat Cullen. Harper stands up to the guys, and they beat Cullen anyway, so Harper uses a taser on one. She tries to scare the other guy off, but another group of them appear in the alley. Smoke begins to fill the alley, and Batman swings down and takes them out, telling them to stay away from the rose, before swinging back off into the night. A few days later, Harper had noticed that all the recorded footage of Batman has come from smartphones and cameras, all the type of footage that only shows a blur. She says that she noticed the date and the address on the videos, and said that some of them were recorded near her near where she did maintenance on CCTV cameras, and remembered that her boss at the time said that all the, that the passwords were the same for all the different systems. Using that knowledge and password, Harper hacks into a CCTV camera and notices that the cameras go offline whenever Batman is there. Wondering how he did this, Harper searched the electrical grid in the sewers and noticed that Batman had been using boxes around the grid to take power from Wayne Industries buildings and use it to keep the grid going as well as controlling the CCTV cameras. She took all of the boxes and boosted their range so that they would be big enough should any of them go down. She then spots Batman on a tracker and notices that the box closest to him went down. She heads off and, after finding the box, is almost caught up in a fight between Batman and Tiger Shark on a boat. She drains the water and then leaves as Batman takes down Tiger Shark. The next day at work, she's paid a visit by Batman, who tells her to stop what it is she's doing. Harper tells him that she was helping him by making sure that the box was online, before realising that Batman himself had turned it off so the police could see and set up a net for Tiger Shark's boat. Harper thanks Batman for saving them from the guys in the alley. And when she turns around, he's gone. Uh, first off, was there some editorial interference on page nine? With the words in the head. Yeah, where she's carved... They've carved the derogatory term for being gay into the back of his head, which we're not going to say because it's derogatory. She's also carved into the back of her own head, but on the panel where you're looking at it, you can't actually see it clearly on either of them. 
And that to me looks suspiciously like a square where they've done something. Do you not know think? Look carefully at panel two on page nine. Oh yeah. Can you see what I mean? Yeah. It looks like um they've done something to the art on that page. Maybe Capullo originally penciled the entire word, but for Capullo didn't because he didn't pencil this issue. Becky okay, Clunan Becky Clunan yeah. penciled it a bit further left so we could see it all. Yeah. But they moved it further to the right. It's entirely possible. Ambiguity. Yeah, I, I do think there's some fudging going on there. Well, ambiguity works best for that, really. Yeah. It, it is a bit weird how everyone's looking all shocked and surprised when they're looking at the front of their heads rather than the back. Rather than the back of their heads, yeah. Well, the thing I was shocked and surprised about is if there was editorial interference that the writer didn't storm off the books, Hulkin. <laughs> That's what amazed me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was another great issue from the aforementioned Scott Snyder. Granted, this again wouldn't have been my pick because, as with your Batman story last week, this isn't a Batman story. Well, that was my criteria, not yours. This is the story of Harper Rowe and her brother Cullen making their way in the world today, as best they can, with their own problems and how the Batman influences their lives. For Cullen, it's quite simple. The Batman stomps on the head of the gang who pick on him for being gay. But for Harper, it's more than that, and she starts tracking the Batman's whereabouts to help out. The scene where Batman takes out the gay bashers is pure Batman. He appears out of nowhere, kicks some heads, issues a warning, and disappears, leaving behind an astonished and admiring Harper and Cullen. And the scene where Harper attends the Wayne Foundation dinner is equally good for different reasons, with Alfred and her having a good moment or two. Snyder's dialogue is especially strong in this issue, and the only bum note was the switching artist between pages 21 and 22, which was a bit of an artistic shift, Mm. and and did confuse me ever so slightly, because I thought, what? You couldn't yeah. do the last six pages? I think what it is was that because it's a three ninety nine one, mm. that should have been the back of strip because it was a different writer as well. But they padded out the story so that it was done by both the writer and the co writer and the artist and the co artist as it normally would. So James Tinian wrote the last six pages? Yeah. Because that was what the extra the backup would have been. Is what I'm, I'm assuming. All right, fair enough. Okay, thought it was a bit jarring. Yeah, personally, but all right, fair enough. Uh, still, it was another good issue and a good handling of a social topic without screaming diversity, as you said last week with Batwoman. Oddly, this issue didn't seem to get anywhere near the level of publicity as the recent Batwoman Farago or Alan Scott, despite featuring a similar theme. Perhaps it's because Scott Snyder writes characters rather than characteristics. Could be. Could be. The art was good, not up to the level of Greg Capullo, and I do wonder why he was this month. Uh, I can see what you see in this. This is a Vertigo comic done as a standard DC book, isn't it? It's a good Vertigo comic. You know? Very entertaining read, but it is a Vertigo artist. Mm. I think that's fair to say. Uh, This is one of the only two single issues of Snyder's run. Um, the other one being the other Harper Row issue after Death of the Family. And it takes place over the first few issues of Snyder's run. Uh, taking place at the charity event in issue one. And it ends in the middle of Court of Owls and before the Night of Owls. Does it? Yes. That's pretty cool. You know the issue we covered last week? Yeah. That takes place before them. Right. Because she saves him from... Well, she revives him after he dies. Yeah. 
and they already have some history from this issue. Right. Very good. Um, and one of the reasons I like this issue is the art by Becky Cloonan, who brings a bright, fresh take on all the characters, showing an already seen scene from a different <laughs> perspective with a different art style. Um, this, this issue is essentially what if Batman was drawn by Scott Pilgrim creator Brian Lee O'Malley. Yeah. <laughs> um, Harper is also one of my favourite current Bat characters, first seen in Batman issue one, very but, uh, very uh, briefly very briefly at mm. the charity event right um, and then seen again in issue 7 with dialogue and then after this issue with issue 18 despite her being the poster girl for DC's current diversity checklist <laughs> even if Snyder's handling of her and her brother is well done yeah he did an exceptionally good job with them because it it could have come across as look at us yeah we're doing diversity she really is a checklist character yeah but it actually came across as good yeah. And you, you were invested in both of them. Mm. Even though essentially this is a Batman comic and I bought it to read about Batman, well, those two were quite interesting characters. Because yeah. sometimes that works in a Batman story. In the long run, especially. Yeah, because she ties in with those stories. And there I are times it, where Batman as a shadowy figure yeah. and just pops in and out works. And it also gives a nice break in between. Like what I said before, it's just story arc after story arc. Mm. So. I mean, her, the Harper Rose stories just seem to be a little interlude in between events. You know, when I was writing my notes, I kept calling her Harper Lee. Yeah. Every time I wrote her name, I wrote Harper Lee. A um, couple of notes on this issue. The idea of Batman as an urban legend, something that we'll come to later, gets some play here with Batman tapping into the Gotham grid and taking out cameras and lights wherever he goes in an attempt to cover his exposure. And the note that most of the footage of the Batman is camera phone stuff and blurry that plays into his urban legend myth. And as mentioned earlier, Michael's picked another story about the Gotham grid. Thematically, you did that deliberately, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, had the new 52 been thought out in advance, and let's be brutally honest here, it's becoming more and more apparent that it wasn't, I'd have loved Harper Rowe to have been the second Robin. Yeah. I've said before, if DC really had the guts to go all out and make this a Ground Zero reboot for all its characters, I'd have got rid of all Robins except Dick. And making Harper the second Robin would have been a really good way of saying this is a brand new take instead of trying to have your cake and eat it and cram everything into this silly five-year timeline thing. Yeah. I'd have liked her as Robin. She kind of becomes a Robin. Does she? In issue 18, she does start up her own vigilante career. Right. It's a good issue. It's one of the um, Death of Damien yeah. tie-ins. Have I read that one? Yeah. It's one of Snyder's. I just don't remember it. With art uh, by Andy Kubert. Right. And she takes up a vigilante career and Batman's annoyed at her. And he's also exceptionally annoyed with Damien dying. Well, that would annoy you, wouldn't it? Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Well, I keep saying I'm going to dig out Scott Snyder's run and read it all again. I'm rereading it. You want to have them when I'm done? Yeah. Well, I was thinking of leaving it, read it up to zero month or year or whatever the hell that's called. Yeah. Stop there. And then I'll read all the zero month when that finishes. But they're already plotting out Batman's 75th year next year. And Scott Snyder's got another year long story out planned. Yeah. So that was mean zero month must be finishing in December. Yeah. But I thought zero year was going to be a year long story. No. So I'm slightly confused now. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure we'll, we'll I'm sure it'll all get announced at some point, and we'll mm. probably already has by the time this goes up. You never know. Speaking of second Robins, 
See what see how the segue? That was very good. I thought it was brilliant. Something that was a huge deal when it came out, it's just part of the course nowadays. Would have been brilliant if I'd drawn attention to it. Yeah. Wouldn't it? If I'd been a professional broadcaster, <laughs> I wouldn't have, have done that. Batman 368, cover dated February 1984, has a cover by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano of a shiny, happy Robin taking front and centre whilst the Batman swings in the background. Introducing Robin the Boy Wonder. That's right, we said the Boy Wonder, states the billboard Robin jumps over, eye catching largely because the sky is bright orange. Do you like that one? It's. it's. it's it does its job. It, 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 it. <laughs> It does its job, but the Riddler one was better. Yes, yes, it was. The Riddler one was better. So was Interlude on Earth 2. It's a nice pin-up cover of Robin. Yeah. Isn't it? There's nothing wrong with it, and it does exactly what it's promising to do. It introduces the sensational character find of 1984. Yeah. But, you know... It it would have been better if Batman was holding a giant drum thing and Robin was jumping through it. (laughs) Yes! That would have been pretty cool. Or it would have been better if we didn't have a giant orange sky... Yeah. If we had a darker sky, it would have been cooler. A Revenge of Rainbows was written by Doug Mensch, with art by Don Newton and Alfredo Alcala, Ben Oda lettered, Adrian Roy coloured, and Len Wein edited. Following Jason Todd's baptism of fire against Poison Ivy, he and the Batman sit in the cave pondering what to call himself. Batman and Ishmael, Eagle, Domino and Tonto are all put forward, but rejected for their idiocy. Using this as his cue, Dick Grayson enters the cave, having elected to pass on the mantle of Robin to Jason and forge his own path. Meanwhile, in an abandoned warehouse, Crazy Quilt is having his new helmet surgically implanted into his skull. In addition to curing his blindness, the wacky helmet he now wears can see in any direction, in addition to being a video camera and a laser. Kinski, the man who designed the helmet, now wants his quarter million dollars, but Quilt has other things on his mind. The murder of Robin. And he kills Kinski, who quite reasonably just wanted paid for his work. Batman and the all-new Robin take to the streets of Gotham once more, and the first few nights are successful. But whilst Jason ponders the magnitude of filling another man's pixie boots, Crazy Quilt clocks the news and prepares to strike. As night falls, three coloured lights fill the Gotham night and the Batman and his new charge investigate. The Batman recognises the lights as being from Crazy Quilt, a villain who hates Robin even more than he hates the Batman, as it was Robin who caused his blindness. He orders Robin to stay behind for... Backup. Yeah, that's it. Backup. But this is a mistake as Crazy Quilt attacks, blinding Robin with his light and brutally beating him, a Robin who has no idea who he is. The Batman returns to the alley to find Robin beaten and lying in the garbage. You would have thought that uh, Jason would be used to being beaten. Ah, but this is pre-crisis dress. Post-crisis. Pre- yeah, pre-crisis. Even I'm yeah. confused. Um, I thought this issue was alright, but it did feel very weird. Um, did it seem strange to you going back reading pre-crisis Jason Todd? Yeah, but it wasn't just that as well. Um, Bruce and Jason's relationship felt weird. There was just something about it which was quite wrong. Right. Um, and Jason being Dick Mark II, essentially. Yeah. Which um, it was one of the reasons why they changed it, because yes. he really was another Dick Grayson. Yeah. Well, essentially, Jerry Conway was told to do that. I was yeah. reading the back issue that Chris Franklin sent me. It was actually Chris's article. Yeah. It was Jerry Conway was basically told to just make him Dick Grayson again. But that, his origin was the same as well. Yeah, pretty much. And they look exactly the same. Well, Jason's dyed his hair black. 
Jason was originally a, a fur, he'd blonde to ginger child. Right. And Jason dyes his hair black to be Robin. So that line in Batman and Robin where Jason says he even made me dye my hair because he was obsessed. Yeah. Wasn't just another Grant Morrison throw. No, it was a nod to this era. Right, fair enough. Oh, you see. So, so Batman did make Jason dye his hair. No, Batman, it's never mentioned in this Batman makes Jason dye his hair. Fair enough. It's Jason's choice to dye his hair so that people think it's the same Robin. It's editorial. Well, <laughs> according to Denny O'Neill, when they came to redo Jason's origin, there was no editorial edict. You yeah. basically just said, do what you want. So that's what they did. But the editorial edict for Jerry Conway was apparently make him just like Dick Grayson. Right. So he did. Fair you know, so you can't fault the writer for doing what he was, was told. What this issue needed more though was like more crazy quilt. <laughs> he had the best bits in this. Do you know I don't think the words this comic needs more crazy quilt have ever been uttered by anybody. <laughs> Well, this issue needed. This issue needed more crazy quilt. Um, yeah, I suppose it is hard to explain to readers of comics who only came up in the nineties and later what a big deal a new Robin was to readers of Batman at this time, and even readers like myself who came up in the early eighties had never really had a Batman and Robin team. Sure, we'd seen the TV show and the cartoons, but in the comics. To me as a reader, anyway. Robin was always off on his own, doing his own thing, dropping by occasionally for a visit, like the Malay Penguin and such. Um, but Batman primarily works alone. So to have a new Robin, one that would be working side by side with Batman on a regular basis, was a novelty. And that it wouldn't be Dick Grayson in the Domino Mask was a big deal. This hadn't been done before. Mm. And I suppose that's why it's so memorable. The story itself is concerned with legacy, the legacy of others and what they leave behind, and Jason is finding it tough stepping into the shoes of Robin, even though it's what he wanted. The distinct lack of drama concerning Dick giving up being Robin is astonishing when you think of how it all plays out nowadays. He shows up for a few panels, he gives Jason the costume, and he buggers off. That's yeah. it. There's a couple of nice moments with Bruce where he realises Dick has just grown up and needs to go off and be his own man. But there's no falling out or arguing. Just Dick acknowledging that these were some of the best times of his life, but just, it's time now to move on. And Bruce reluctantly lets him go. Yeah. And it's, it's an amazing clarity of storytelling how quickly they just get that out of the way, isn't it? Is it one page? Yeah. Six issue miniseries now. In here, it's, he shows up in one panel on page two. And then we get the crazy quilt subplot for a couple of pages. <laughs> and then he's on page seven, page six, seven, and then he's out the door by halfway through page eight. Yeah. Isn't he? No drama. Just, there you go, here's my Robin costume. I've washed it. Especially the underwear. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's quite astonishing, really. Uh, the majority of this issue is a first night montage similar to any number of superhero movies, and it's it's quite fun. It's also fun that it is telling its second string a crazy quilt, who's Robin's arch-nemesis rather than Two-Face, as it would be later. I guess crazy quilt wasn't sufficiently entertaining. Uh, I've got a bit of a soft spot for these B-listers, as you might have noticed, seeing how many have showed up on my list of favourite stories. Bouncer. Yeah, the bouncer. <laughs> uh, quilt's goofy. I admit that. Yeah. But he's murderous in a way that the ultra-realistic de- ultra DC probably wouldn't do anymore. 
He'd be, still be murderous. Yeah, but that'd be it. Yeah, but he wouldn't be goofy anymore, would he? Yeah. He wouldn't be goofy and fun. Again, the Newton Alcala artwork is wonderful with a couple of great montage shots. One of Robin's many victories, one of Crazy Quilt's origin, and an absolutely great one of Batman and Robin's night vanquishing crime. But it's interesting that this issue has a very melancholic feel hanging over it, rather than being celebratory. Ultimately, this story feels a little anticlimactic nowadays when we've seen Robin beaten to death with a crowbar (laughs) and gone through at least five of them. But I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for the pre-crisis Robin who was beaten by Crazy Quilt and dyed his hair black. And for a Bruce and Dick who didn't indulge in soap opera histrionics when they grew apart. I don't care what bloody crisis we're up to. This comic is still here. Look, (laughs) still here. It doesn't not exist. And I can still read it whenever the hell I like. Back to the Futures, depending on what. (laughs) Five-year timeline, it just disappears out of my hand. (laughs) I'll have to go for the Enchantment Under the Water dance or whatever it was called. (laughs) The Enchantment Under the DC offices. (laughs) The enchantments under the back cave dance. <laughs> there is a subplot in this issue where Alfred is off with his daughter investigating her stepfather's death that was all swept away in the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And Crazy Quilt may look a little goofy, but he's just as insane as the Monarch of Menace, casually killing Kinski simply because he wants his money. I don't think Quilt thought that through, Yeah. to be honest with you. What if the helmet malfunctions and needs an upgrade? He's just killed the only guy who knew how it worked. What an idiot. <laughs> anyway, Crazy Quilt seemed like a villain who would be perfect for Bebo the Batman. Yeah. And as Michael mentioned earlier on, he was used very well in The Colour of Revenge. Uh, really cool episode of The Brave and the Bold. Because mm. it, was, it was a 1960s TV show episode. Yeah. Because it had Robin in it. And Maybe it actually had him shaking hands. hands. No, he had the regular costume. I'm sure he, he has There may be an, is, an episode where he has the Earth 2 costume on, but I don't think it's that one. Fair enough. Uh, uh, what did you think of Jason's interim costume? Um, it's yellow leggings, red boots, a red tunic, and a yellow cape with green gloves. It reminded me of what Tim Drake would eventually wear. Yeah. I didn't like the belt, but other than that, I thought I, I quite like that. But you know, reading this has actually answered a long-running question I had about the Morrison run. What? There's just one throwaway panel in one of the... Final Crisis tie-ins mm. were, you know the one where he's being mind-controlled so we see him different memories and different lives? Yeah. And he's looking through the, the Wayne Manor underground and the caves and he sees a skeleton with a costume on it. I had no idea what it was. But was it, it that costume? It was that costume. <laughs> That's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, this story was concluded in Detective Comics 535 as was the norm of the time. Norm! Very vocal. Different knob. In 2006, we were introduced to Damian Wayne, Batman's son, by Grant Morrison in the story Batman and Son. Over the course of the story, Damian would take over as Robin with Dick Grayson as Batman. Um, What? I was just going to say, never let him say Grant Morrison's not a genius. (laughs) We were introduced to Batman's son in a story entitled Batman and Son. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, When Bruce Wayne was sent back in time due to the events of Final Crisis. The reader would come to like Damien, especially in Batman Incorporated Volume 2. Despite his unlikable personality and his introduction, which he still kept up until this volume. In 2012, DC would tell us that Damien would die, and showed us the panel of his death, 
weeks before the release of Batman Incorporated <laughs> Volume 2, Issue 8. That sticks in your crawl, out of it. Yep, still not read it yet, DC. <laughs> Are you waiting for the hardcover? Yep, so thanks for that, DC. You've you've got a, you've got a reader here. I think here. you couldn't have got to this point without knowing that he died. I could have. I could have uh, if DC didn't do it. DC ruined it. Bleeding enough. Cool didn't. Bleeding Cool did not ruin Damien's oh, death. Okay, fair enough. After this issue, <laughs> DC, calm down. Yes, after this issue, DC made it even clearer that Damien was dead by tying in all the bat titles that month. However, the adverts for this tie-in were released before the issue's actual release. <laughs> I love it when you get angry. <laughs> this is normally me. Yep. <laughs> Who needs to buy a DC comic when DC are quite happy to tell you what happens in their own comics for free? But please, please buy their comics. The tie-ins were fine. Was there any reason for the main books to tie into a series that just ignored them? One of the standouts of this line, though, was my next choice. Batman and Robin, issue 18. Undone. Uh, it was cover dated May 2013 as a cover by Patrick Gleason of Batman swooping down in the rain with bats flying all around him. Boring poster cover telling me nothing of the issue nor I would wish to buy it. Check. Nice crescent moon though. I really like that cover actually. It's fine as a poster. As a cover to a comic it does not entice me into buying it. I guess but the, the cover for Batman Batman 18 was just a pair of boots. Oh, was that the cover? Yeah. That was the advert in this issue? Yeah. Right, I see. Bruce is sat in quiet Wayne Manor in front of the fire. Alfred stands in front of an unfinished painting of the Bat slash Wayne family, crying. On his way past, Bruce covers up the painting and takes it with him. Bruce slides down the poles into the cave and sees Damien on the pole next to him. When he reaches the bottom, he waits for Damien until he sees blood run down the pole. Bruce costumes up and stands in front of Damien's costume, holding one of his gloves in his hand. Batman swings through the Gotham City and sees Damien swinging next to him before seeing only himself in the reflection of a building. In the Batmobile, Batman sees Damien in the passenger seat taking a drink. Bruce now gets angry and speeds the car up, taking his anger out on a streetlight. In his fury, Batman goes on overhaul and beats down all the crime that night. At 12, Bullock wakes Gordon up with a phone call. On the roof of the GCPD, Gordon sees several beaten criminals tied to the roof. Back at the cave, Bruce stands in the shower before placing his costume back in the cave lockers. He spots something he hadn't noticed before, a note on Damien's locker. He reads the note from Damien, telling Bruce that he will not let him fight Leviathan alone, a decision that cost him his life. Bruce now gets really angry and starts punching and throwing the locker until his hands start bleeding before sitting on the floor in the dark, holding Damien's costume as tight as possible. Um, this was a nicely paced, silent issue. Aren't all comics silent? Yeah. Showing Bruce going through the first two stages of the Kubler-Ross grief list, denial and anger. I have to confess I was coming to this pretty raw, because I've read very little Damien Wayne, very little of this new Batman and Robin title, and no Batman Incorporated apart from what we covered last week. So whilst I dug on the issue, there were a few things I felt needed clarifying. First, the painting of the Wayne family only has Alfred, Dick, Tim, Damien and Bruce on it. So is Jason Todd not a Robin in the New 52? 
Well, didn't they have a thing where Tim wasn't a Robin? So why is Tim on the painter? Because why is Tim a Wayne? He's Red Robin and used to be a Robin. And has at some point Bruce adopted him? I've no idea. I think Bruce isn't on best terms with Jason in this because of the whole Red Hood thing. So the so Red Hood thing happened? Yeah. So the Joker Red Hood. beat Jason to death at some point in the past five years? That might not have happened, but he is the Red Hood. So is the Red Hood animated movie now in comics continuity where it was all Rash Al Ghul? It was Rash Al Ghul anyway. Not originally, the Joker beat him to the crowbar. And Rachel Ghoul put him through the the thingy pit. Yeah, they streamline all that. Have you not watched Under the Red Hood? Yeah. The cartoon? That was based on the Jason Todd Red Hood. Sorry. Right, okay, so Ra- Raz is responsible for bringing him back. But in, in Under in, the Red Hood, in, they eliminate all the... In pre-New 52. Right. So does all that still... I have no idea. Oh. I just know that... Jason is Red Ro- that Jason is Red Hood. Right, you've made me head hurt. Secondly, has the Batman hunted down the man that killed his son? You got that from this issue? Yes. Oh. Has he done that? Has he found the man that killed Damien? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Batman Incorporated. Right. He, in, in the next issue, he uses his own sword to beat the crap out of him. All right, fair enough. Thirdly, isn't losing all these Robins starting to make him look very curless? He's only lost one. Right, so Jason now wasn't a Robin. No. Right. And he wasn't beaten to death by the Joker, so he's only lost one Robin. Yeah. Okay. So this this wouldn't be making him slightly mental. No. Right, okay, fair enough. He has, however... Another Robin has, however, done what happened when he was beaten to death. So even though he wasn't beaten to death, he still came back as Red Hood. Brain hurts! <laughs> I don't read Red Hood on the outside. Alright, fair enough. I did like that the bat pulls have made a comeback. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic. And the scene where we pull back from the bat signal and we just see that Bruce has left a roof full of crooks for Commissioner Gordon made me laugh out loud. The scene where he just pulls the curtain over the painting of the family because it isn't finished and to drive we'll the knife in it won't get Damien's bit that isn't finished yeah. oh it can be finished it's only missing his suit you can make one of them up he's probably buried in it you can just go and have a look at him um, this was a very entertaining issue the art was good it felt a little bit like the body episode of Buffy probably had more impact on the people who were following the whole storyline though well, that was one of my points. You couldn't follow the whole storyline if you were just reading Batman and Robin, right? And not Batman Incorporated. So suddenly, the, the plot line that is going on in Batman Incorporated just encroaches in all your stories that month. Yeah. And you're sat there going, "What?" Despite Grant Morrison saying, "Oh, all those other stories, I can just wipe my arse on them because they don't matter. It's just well, my story." Scott Snyder has pretty much said the same thing. Yeah. On Fatman on Batman. He said the Night Court of Owls stuff, all the tie is nothing to do with him. Yeah. He said he barely read them. He offered the writers some notes about what they could and couldn't do and just let them do it. It was an editorial edict. Same with this zero year. Yeah. All the tie ins, nothing to do with Scott Snyder, all the story he's telling. Fair he enough. wanted zero year to be a Batman story in the Batman book that him and Greg Capullo could do together as a team so they could create a complete entity similar to the Long Halloween. Yeah. And it's editorial who keep throwing in these ridiculous tie-ins. Well, Jeff Johns wanted to have brightest 
Darkest Night in yeah. Blackest Night in Green Lantern. And Diddy or Maiden. Yeah. Yeah, so. Uh, five years So, though, finally, proof positive that tie ins don't matter. Gotta have everything, boy. You're like a Pokemon, aren't you? <laughs> Gotta collect them all. Um, this, for me, uh, is a great personal Batman and Bruce Wayne story showing how the death of Damon has affected both personalities. It works really well without um, dialogue, with the only words being Damon's letter, giving the story that extra little punch in the gut. It also has some great artwork reflecting on the cover in some cases and showing Batman in all his moody glory. Uh, it's a great single issue that works better as if read uh, after Batman Incorporated. If that makes any sense. Yeah. It, may, yeah, it makes perfect sense. It'd probably work much better when I've read Batman Incorporated. Which messes up the timeline even more. Because then where does Batman Incorporated come in? Because in Batman <laughs> and Batman and Robin, Damien is in it. But then in all the titles... Damien dies after Batman Incorporated but Batman Incorporated is one long story so when do all the other stories happen? Uh, coming up next <laughs> is one of my all time favourite stories Batman's Son of the Demon a graphic novel by Mike W. Barr and Jerry Bingham came out in hardcover on 8th September 1987 with 88 pages and an introduction by Mark Hamill for 14.95. Batman and Son, not point five. Yes, after we followed Damien's death. Yeah. We totally planned this, didn't we? We did. We sat down and meticulously planned the order in which they happened. Well, if we did We didn't. It, if we did plan it, would we not have had them the other way around? Probably would have been better had we done that, yeah. So we didn't plan it. No, no, I like the idea of his death and then his birth. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I think that's quite good. Uh, the soft cover came out on the 8th of December 1988 for $8.95 without the Mark Hamill introduction. The cover is by Jerry Bingham. It's a standard Batman on a gargoyle shot, but it's beautifully painted. Originally, I had the soft cover because I couldn't afford the hard cover, but later when I was working on a bit more money, I replaced it with the hard cover. Because the hardcover's lovely. Mm. I like the hardcover a lot. Do you like the cover? I do, yeah. It needs to be raining, doesn't it? Yeah, it reminds me, with the sky and Batman Stanley, it reminds me of the animated series credits. Oh, yeah, so it does. (laughs) Yeah, good point, yeah. Mm. I noticed that before you pointed out, but yeah, totally with that red scale. The Batman is taking down a terrorist network operating out of Gotham, but he's grazed by gunfire. Being the goddamn Batman, this doesn't stop him, but after the dust has settled, he finds himself woozy and passes out. He awakens in the Batcave where Talia al Ghul has brought him. The Batman has shared a stormy on-again, off-again romance with Talia for many years, despite his ideological conflict with her father, and they were in fact married in the eyes of Talia and Raz, if not the Batman. After sharing a moment, the Batman returns to Commissioner Gordon. He has interrogated the surviving terrorists and learned they all had a distinctive mark, a letter Q cut into their faces. This leads them to Kane, a terrorist and murderer. Kane is linked with General Yossid out of Golatia, somewhere in Iran, and the Batman asks what the terrorists were after in Gotham. Gordon says they wanted a chemical, pluviculture, used in the science of rainmaking, and this sends the Batman to Dr. Harris Blaine, an expert on the subject. But when he arrives, Blaine is dead. Before he died, Blaine pulled a page out of an astronomy textbook with the binary star Algol on it, a word that means the ghoul, which leads the Batman to believe that Talia's father, eco-terrorist Ra's al Ghul, may not be dead. Ra's al Ghul and Batman turn out to be searching for the same man, 
Kane's parents were killed in Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, a mission they were carrying out for Raz, and the loss of his parents turned Kane rogue. Seeking the secret of the Lazarus Pit, Raz's eternal youth spa dip, Kane murdered Raz al Ghul's wife, Melisande, mother to Talia. Raz offers the Batman the opportunity to put away the differences and work together for the greater good, for if Kane can control the weather satellites, he may well be unstoppable. Before you can say, wasn't this in Superman 3, the Batman and Raz are a coalition, and the first attempt to stop Kane from accessing the satellites at Cape Canaveral fail. Where the Batman has not failed is in knocking Talia up, for, although his utility belt has any number of fabulous crime-fighting gadgets, a condom isn't one of them, and the prospect of a family has a profound effect on the Batman's demeanour, making him more risk-averse and softening his typically grim outlook. The Batman is nearly killed, protecting the recently pregnant but still very dangerous Talia from an attack by the Assassin's agents. Rather than risk his child, the Batman quits. In his raid on the rockets, Kane captures one of Al Ghul's men, and he learns his location to access the Lazarus Pit for himself, as he is being diagnosed as terminally ill. Launching an all-out attack, Kane fails when Raz destroys the pit rather than have it fall into enemy hands. Kane still manages to tap into the satellites, however, and starts a tornado which he directs towards Moscow, which they take as an act of war. Talia collapses and has a miscarriage, and this brings the Batman back into the fight. Raz and Batman attack, with Raz tasked at stopping the satellite, and the Batman charged with taking out Kane. Kane finds Raz, though, and after Raz has stopped the satellites, Kane threatens Raz with open cables, but the Batman piles in and Kane falls into the cables himself and is electrocuted. Upon returning to Raz's stronghold, Talia asks the Batman to leave, and he does. Returning to Gotham, unaware Talia is still carrying his child. He reveals that Blaine was killed by his colleague, who sold copies of Blaine's plans to Kane. Six months later, the child, a boy, is born and left with an orphanage and soon adopted by a Western couple. The only hint of his impressive heritage is a jewel-encrusted necklace, a gift Bruce gave to Talia just before Kane attacked Raz's HQ. Yeah, this story was actually pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one, it was just a generally cool book. It is. Uh, with Batman being badass the entire way through in his stealth combat missions. Yep. Um, another thing that made it cool was how brutal the story was, which was strange, especially in a bat book of the time. Um, and there are even some bits that even current DC wouldn't print. The face melting, Batman letting the man's face melt. Yeah. One of Rice's soldiers being tortured. When not seeing the torture, and then killed. Um, Kane crushing the general to death so that his ribs come out of his skin. Um, even the amount of swearing... Um, whilst it does pop up occasionally, it does pop up more than you'd expect. Yeah. Um, I also didn't expect Batman to be as fine with all the sex he has. Wouldn't you be alright with all the sex he's getting? Well, whilst it's implied, Batman probably has more sex in this one book than Bruce Wayne has in the entire pre-Flashpoint Batman books. I think that page with Talia is more than implied, dude. Well, yeah, but there's quite a few bits like, and uh, Batman enjoys being a new family man. Hmm. Well, yeah. given what Talia looks like in this book, it's perfectly understandable. <laughs> and despite this, it was really good character-driven story with nice moments between Batman and Raj and even Batman messing up a murder case because of his own prejudices. Uh, my only problem with it was that the plot twist at the end, which I did think was a bit out of nowhere... What, that she gives the baby away? Yeah. Uh, yeah, alright, fair enough. Somebody else pointed out that it was great that she gets undressed to, then get, to get dressed, dressed again. 
Yeah. Just so she can seduce him with her uh, a slinky nightgown. When she could have just seduced him wearing nothing. That he was then that take worked. off anyway. But he then takes off her anyway. But yeah. if you notice, it kind of opens up in such a way that he doesn't have to. I know, but you'd want to play with the goodies as well, wouldn't you? So do you think in that country they have some kind of ceremonial first night dress? Possibly. Whatever country Razi's from. Yeah. Um, it's a sprawling storyline. Starts in Gotham and takes the Batman on a globe-trotting adventure that rarely for a Batman story threatens the entire world. Of course, when a Batman story does feature a world-threatening menace, you can be pretty sure Ra's al Ghul's in there somewhere. It's hard to know where to begin, really, with my admiration for this story. For me, this was a truly mature Batman story that my 16-year-old self absolutely adored. More than Year One, more than Dark Knight Returns, this really felt like mature comics storytelling and comic growing up. It isn't just the amping up of the sex and violence, although they are tame by today's standards. It was the themes of this story that that really made an impact on me. For one, the opening pages where Batman takes out the terrorists was brutal. Yes, we got the usual Batman tricks of him appearing and disappearing and making his enemies freak out, but the threat level seemed much higher than usual. In normal comics, the enemies seemed that much more threatening and that much more real. The Batman seemed that much more intimidating. There's a terrorist that just picks out a pregnant woman and promises to rape her. Does a Conan. Yeah, I mean, he's a reprehensible human being, thoroughly deserving of the Batman's wrath, because he starts carving a cue in the poor woman's cheek, and you're just going... Batman just punch his, punch his head off. Mm. And so when he does, it's great. And what happens to him is, is thoroughly deserving. He literally punches his face off. He, he literally punches his face off, yeah. He fires his weapon at toxic chemicals that spurt all over him and burn his face off. And Batman just stands, and, Batman just stands and watches him. Yeah. And I love the line, damn you! And Batman's like, he got you first. And he's like, yeah. Is the implication of that that he died? Yeah, it's burned his face off. And I presume it's burned right through to his brain. So yeah, I got that he died from that. He didn't survive that. Uh, Batman takes down the terrorists one at a time, which is always a satisfying story beat. Yet his humanity of giving himself up when the pregnant woman is again threatened with violence shows his human side. When the captor opens fire and the Batman's hit, it's a stunning moment. We're not used to seeing Batman get shot, at least at, at this time in comics history. And the terrorist bullets ripping into the barrels of the toxic chemicals and melting him before our eyes was quite horrific for a comic in the late 80s. It's very similar to a scene in Robocop, but as that film only came out in July of 87, it's doubtful Barr had seen it when scripting this book. The Batman is absolutely wonderful throughout this entire opening section. He clearly doesn't revel in the man's death, but he's not too broken up about it, is he? Mm. Later, when a doctor is administrating aid to a terrorist hurt by Batman at the expense of the pregnant woman, the Batman forcibly pulls the doctor away despite the terrorist's rights being violated and forces him to check out the, the pregnant woman. Yeah. I can't have been the only one reading this who heard Dirty Harry say, I'm all broken up about that man's rights. <laughs> I love that bit. Absolutely fantastic. He's a terrorist. Check out the pregnant woman. But this man has rights. 
Do it! <laughs> Loved it. Absolutely thought it was brilliant. You can wait. The story also concerns itself with the player on the other side in its own way. Raz has been seen many times to be the equal of the Batman, wonderfully demonstrated in this story by the chess matches that always end in a stalemate. But Kane is also a darker reflection of Batman, another man who lost his parent but has taken a completely different path that leads them both into conflict. The Batman's relationship with Talia has never been easy, but for me, she's his natural partner. Catwoman's probably more kinky, but she's attracted to the danger. And settling down would probably bore Selina Kyle. Talia loves Bruce. As in the Generations miniseries, I, I envision them ultimately getting together and taking over Ra's empire. And doing some real good on a worldwide scale. Despite the heavy themes, Barr never forgets he's writing an action comic. And there are some great set pieces. The Batman leaps into a hovering helicopter, taking on the criminals at Cape Canaveral, and the extensive battle scenes and the wonderful conclusion. There are also moments of stark realism, or as realistic as you can get in a superhero comic. The Batman's wound becomes infected after falling into the Gotham River, and his needing patching up again shows he's a mortal man, and his reticence at Talia being in action after he finds out she's pregnant is well handled, where the Batman loses some of his edge. Ultimately, this is why Talia gives up the baby, as she clearly sees that it affects the Batman and prevents him from doing the job he was born to do. But I also wondered if some of this was also that she didn't want it being raised by her father. Bingham does something very clever with Talia in the artwork, always drawing her in the middle of Raz and the Batman. Mm. A very nice, subtle, artistic touch that he manages to pull off all the way through the book. I thought that was really clever. There are some missteps. The Batman goes into battle with Talia, who has no problem mowing down bad guys with a machine gun, and Batman never even mentions it, although earlier he trains Raz's men to use non-lethal force. Obviously, even the Batman can't tell his wife what to do. <laughs> There's no getting around the fact as well that at the conclusion of the story, the Batman causes Kane's death. He kicks him into the electrified cables and simply paints a cue on Kane's dead face with his own blood. Where he even says he hopes he's not at peace, as he believed Kane caused Talia to lose the baby. What do you think of that ending? I liked that. Did you? Yep. That he didn't actively kill him, but by kicking him into the cables, he causes his death. I, I liked that. All right. Because the with this is... There's the very personal statement yeah. he thinks Cain has cost him his child. Yeah. And it's... He, all the way through, he hasn't been the Batman, but... I would argue he was at the beginning. From the minute Talia yeah. shows up, he's off his game. Yeah. Because it's Talia. But I don't think that was uncharacteristic of him. Just different. Right. Perhaps a little bit more brutal than we're used to. Yeah. But, but it understandable. works really well. Yeah, it works in this in this storyline. Um, Mike W. Barr has had Batman use a thug as a shield against gunfire in Detective Issue 572. So whilst Barr seems like he never actually has Batman kill, he doesn't seem against people dying because of Batman's actions. Yeah. Which is a slightly different thing, but... 
still a little bit dubious. Barr previously wrote quite whimsical stories, the aforementioned notwithstanding, so the heaviness of this was a very pleasant surprise. Jerry Bingham's art is amazing. There isn't one single gratuitous splash page in this entire 78-page story. In fact, there isn't a splash page Mm. anywhere. His panelling is amazing. He doesn't seem to have done a lot of comics work, but his art is amazing in this. Absolutely stunning. He did do a couple of issues of Iron Man, if memory serves, and he came back, you know, for that retroactive stunt DC did not long ago. He got back with Mike W. Barr and they did another story Uh. in the back of the 80s. Batman one, I think, which I don't remember a lot of. Yeah. So having reread this, I think I'm going to dig that out and see if that's any good. Uh, and then there's the ended, which controversial though it was at the time, Barr did want to do a sequel where Batman and Riles find out the child is still alive. But according to Barr in an interview on Comics Alliance, there were Warner executives in Burbank, California, that were extremely angry over Son of the Demon and the fact that this child did exist. And they told Jeanette Kahn to never use the child again. Jeanette Kahn herself called me and told me that if the child ever appeared again in a story, she would be fired. I don't know how much of that I believe, even to this day, but basically we were told to never use the child ever again. He does not exist in continuity anymore. Grant Morrison would bring back the concept for his run on Batman, but it's such a completely different origin, as we saw when we covered Batman 666, that I've never really been able to reconcile the two of them in any way, preparing to think that Morrison's take is just a different take on the same idea. Still, whatever, as with Barr's other seminal back work, the player on the other side will always have Son of the Demon. Yeah, I don't think that's particularly fair to have... You, you not be able to do stories just because of someone in a different media format. Well, you know. Comics aren't a media format, but the bitches of movie makers. And welcome to comics. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. What have you got next? Uh, next up is a big... Big comic. ...sized book... Batman War on Crime. Batman War on Crime is one of the four initial Treasury editions published by DC in between 1998 and 2001. Each volume was 58 pages and fully painted by Alex Ross and written by Paul Dini, and was so popular two further volumes featuring the Justice League of America followed in 2002 and 2003. The first four featured a different hero, Superman, Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel, and of course, The Batman. War on Crime came out on November 17th, 1999, with a cover by Alex Ross that shows a huge close-up of Batman's face. Interestingly, he depicts Batman as having blue eyes on the cover, but brown eyes in the story itself. Maybe that's only interesting to me. The cover in and of itself isn't that interesting, but the fact that it's a treasury-sized comic, it's Alex Ross, and that it was quite decently priced, make for an attractive-looking package. As the actress said to the bishop. Thank you for that, co-pilot. Take it away. Bruce Wayne is in a meeting where he's being told that upscale housing and retail venues built on the Bayside industrial area is an investment opportunity. In charge of the upscaling is Randall Winters, who is quick to encourage Bruce's participation in the project. Bruce just nods and tells him that he'll consider it. That night in the Bayside area, Batman hears gunshots and an alarm. He finds a gunman fleeing from a store and he takes him down quickly in an alley. When he returns to the store, he finds two dead bodies, the parents of a boy named Marcus, who sat crying behind the counter. Marcus is taken into care, and a few nights later, whilst on patrol, Batman spots a gang stealing from an electronics store. 
He takes them down before finding Marcus in the gang. He stands there as Marcus runs away. Later, Bruce meets Winters, and is told that a lot of community left Bayside after taking his money, leaving those who couldn't take the money targets for gangs. As for the undesirables, Winters adds, he knows a few moonlighting police who will run them off for a buck or two. Bruce memorises the Bayside map, and for the next few days hits all the crime there hard and fast, until criminals start getting his message. He follows a gang to an old paper factory at the docks, the home of many of Bayside's criminals. Batman breaks in and takes the men down until he hears the hammer of a gun pulled back. He turns and sees Marcus pointing the gun right at him. He talks to Marcus, telling him not to turn into what killed both of their parents. Marcus hands over the gun and hugs Batman. Wayne Industries buys the factory and opens up new jobs and opportunities for the people of Bayside. At Winter's house, Bruce wishes him good luck with future endeavours and leaves before the police show up for Randall about certain moonlighting police taking a certain book or two. All the way through this, every time I just saw Bayside, I just kept thinking of Saved by the Bell. Yeah. As usual, I do enjoy seeing what you pick for these kinds of episodes. Yeah. That we both love comics, but we like different kinds of comics. It's one of the ways I've enjoyed watching you find your own path in terms of what you like. And I really shouldn't have a problem with this pick. But you do. (laughs) Alex Ross is an artist I like, although I don't fall over his sequential work in quite the same way others do. And Paul Dini, as a writer, I think, understands Batman better than pretty much anyone around today, with excellent episodes of the animated series and numerous excellent comics under his belt. And let's get this out of the way. I did enjoy this. I did not like it. I liked all of these Treasury editions. Well, except the Wonder Woman one, but that's only because I don't have it and haven't read it. And the problems I had with this particular story are applicable to all of those editions. One, Dini's story is quite slight in comparison with the Treasury editions of Yore. And reading this didn't take me any more than 20 minutes. Not factoring in the wow factor of the art. Compare that to Son of the Demon, which was a good 45-50 minute read. B, (laughs) that's for Dave, the story... But the story is slight in all three of the others I've read, and that didn't really bother me. But what did bother me for such a special event is that this is a story of a kind we've seen before. The Captain Marvel one taught Marvel a lesson he needed to learn, as did the Superman one. And at least in the Superman edition, we got to see Superman truly being a global force for good. In this story, Bruce is in a situation we've seen him in many different times before, including Batman issue 12. Yeah. Yeah. That you just picked. I mean, that would be subsequent to this, but the principle's the same thing. A rich corporate businessman threatens a local area by wanting to build exclusive condos or something and wants Bruce to invest. Bruce feigns interest until he can find out the real story and, kill surprise, the other guy's a bad egg. As the Batman, he sees a kid lose his parents in a similar situation to his. Again, so far so familiar. And he works to make an old, run-down neighbourhood a valuable commodity for the people of Gotham. Again, something we've seen before, whilst hopefully putting the boy on a different path. I didn't think this was in any way bad. And for the audience of hopeful new readers that this lovely Treasury edition will have been aimed at, it's probably a novelty to see the Batman take this kind of tack in his approach to a problem and there not be a familiar member of the rogues gallery involved. But for an old-timer like me, this was a bit samey. 
However, with all due respect to Mr. Deeney, these Treasury editions were not sold on the strength of the story. They were sold on the idea of seeing Ross's gorgeous, fully painted art on a large canvas. And that works admirably with the usual caveats I have about Ross drawing Batman. First of all, again, let's get it out of the way. The artwork is faultless. In fact, it is, in every respect, art in capital letters. However, my problem with Ross drawing Batman is his desire to make everything ultra-realistic. It's a technique that can work exceptionally well for Superman, Wonder Woman, even Green Lantern and The Flash, whereby contrasting their larger-than-life personas with the everyday world, we get to see them as real people in real situations. With Batman, I don't feel this works. The Batman needs to be shadowy and fast-moving. He needs to appear, do his job, disappear. The cape needs to be an almost supernatural in the way it's used. The things he needs to do have to be almost quicker than the human eye. He's a character I feel needs a much larger suspension of disbelief than any other. When we see him just as a man in a suit fighting multiple gunmen in one panel, it kind of takes away from the allure. It dawns on me that that actually seemed rather negative. And I didn't mean it to be. I genuinely do like the creators, and for the most part, I did like this. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I thoroughly enjoyed looking at the art. Watching Bruce's smarmy, smug, rich pals get their comeuppance is always satisfying, although it does sometimes seem like Bruce is the only rich man in comics with a social conscience. And this is a genuinely good human interest Batman story, and in that regard, it works admirably. I just felt I'd read a lot of stories with these elements before, and this didn't really bring a lot to the table but I can see how a younger reader or a casual comics fan brought in by Chris Nolan's movies would like this a great deal. And it's Alex Ross. Yes. So I can understand why why you liked it. Because it's Alex Ross. Yeah. Um, Well, I've always liked this one quite a bit, despite having not read it many times. Uh, Alex Ross is my favourite artist, and this uses full advantage of his art, using many double-page montages and widescreen panels, making this a genuine graphic novel rather than an oversized comic. Uh, All of the oversized Dini Ross uh, works are all about real things, how these characters would deal with them. Sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't, as with all superhero and real things. Batman really only stops one kid from being a criminal. And Superman completely fails his task. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Um, And this was the only one to have a good story where a superhero tackles a real event, because it's just a general event rather than a specific one that the Superman was. Mm. Um, But it kind of takes the super away from the heroes. Superman fails, and Batman can only do one kid. Yeah, but with Batman, that one kid makes it worthwhile. Yes, whereas Superman just had a failed. global time. Yeah, and he's failed the miserably. Yes. Literally got shot down in his tracks. Yeah. They're all still good stories, despite bordering on preachy in some cases. I don't think this one was too preachy. No. I do sometimes think Bruce Wayne is a little bit too good to be true. Yeah. I mean, it's like... When they investigate him, they never find anything wrong with him. And, you know, you'd think he'd dirty up his record a little bit. Yeah. You'd think at some point he would have got Bruce a speeding ticket. Something. Or get drunk and burn his house down. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that. But a speeding ticket or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Would have, so Bruce has at least got some blot on his, on his landscape. But no, I, I, don't, I didn't not like it. Yeah. I don't want anyone to get the idea I didn't. 
it was. It's very. All of those treasure editions were gorgeous comics. They don't even need words on them, really. No, it's just Alex Ross pinup pages, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Okay. Next up, we're into the nineties, and my God, this is going to be a long one. I do apologise. Yeah, because I couldn't whittle it down to ten. Michael's done now, but you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go now. <laughs> uh, we've covered a lot of nineties books on the show. A lot of them favourites for me, so it was no brainer to include an issue of the Batman Adventures, based on the excellent, groundbreaking, and hugely influential animated series of the nineties, spearheaded by Bruce Timm. DC quickly turned the series into a comic. Initially, only planned to be a six-issue miniseries, it was later changed to an ongoing and boasted some of the best back comics ever. But my pick is Annual Number 1, released in September of 1994. The cover shows the Batman standing on a rooftop, cape billowing in the wind, whilst in the foreground the Scarecrow waves his scythe, and the Joker, Harley Quinn, the Ventriloquist, and Scarface stalk slowly with weapons raised. The cover seems to be by Bruce Timm, but I can't actually see a signature anywhere. So that was just a guess that it's by Tim. The issue is a series of short stories by different creative teams, except for the writer, who was Paul Dini on all of them. Going Straight has art by Bruce Tim. After an exciting and intense aerial battle, the Batman puts an end to the recent crime spree from Roxy Rocket. Alfred muses that none of the Batman's colourful rogues end up walking the straight and narrow for long, although the Batman agrees he thought that this time the ventriloquist would beat the odds. This leads into Puppet Show with art by Mike Padabek and Matt Wagner. Arnold Wesker, aka Ventriloquist, has been released from Arkham and landed a job as the puppeteer of Crokey the Frog on Magic Mitzi's Fantasy Forest a hugely successful kids' TV show celebrating 25 years on the air. Alas, this will be its final year on the air if Mr. Radford, the director, has anything to say about it. A magical Mitzi finding out about Wesker's past, she arranges a reunion with Scarface, Wesker's old ventriloquist dummy, who beats Wesker into submission, and they arrange a job to kill Radford. Crokey the frog sells Scarface out, saying that Arnold was his friend and he couldn't bear to see him in trouble again. The Batman stops the assassination attempt, but Scarface punches Crokey in the car the area and crashes, bursting into flames. The ventriloquist returns to the flames to rescue his only friend, Scarface. Alfred says that yes, Wesker is a tragic case, but Harley Quinn is a serial offender. 24 Hours has art by Dan DiCarlo and Bruce Timm. On Monday morning, Harley Quinn is released from Arkham, rehabilitated and determined to go straight. The Joker arrives and Harley quickly returns to him, but after the Batman shows up foiling a jewellery raid, the Joker tosses Harley at Batman to aid his own escape. By Tuesday, Harley's back in Arkham. Study Hall has art by Klaus Janssen. When the Scarecrow takes his leave from Arkham and gains employment at a small community college, he reverts to type when one of his favourite students, Molly Randall, is beaten and molested by a jock moron named Bromley. As the Scarecrow slowly tortures Bromley in revenge, the Batman, who has been monitoring Crane, interferes and has Crane taken back to Arkham and Bromley taken away by the police. At least, as the Scarecrow, the Batman wonders, Crane wears his mask on the outside. Going Straight, Part 2, was out by Bruce Tim. Even Roxy Rocket seems to have reverted to her criminal ways, robbing the Fly Right Cargo Company. The Batman deduces that it isn't Roxy, but Catwoman, who aims to use the money to prevent poaching of precious tigers. But Roxy, fed up of being framed, helps bring Catwoman in. Roxy finds she likes being on the side of the angels, proving that there's a little bit of hope after all. I thought this was really good. It is. Really fun. Yeah, yeah it's uh, a really fun issue. Yeah, the Scarface story was hilarious. Yeah. With Crokey the Frog selling them out and yeah. then croaking. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> um, which and it was sad at the end with him. With yeah. Crokey dying. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was the Scarface story was fantastic. Mm. Um, 
the Scarecrow story I thought was really good, and it was interesting to see him do something bad for a good reason. Mm-hmm. And again, you totally identified with his motives. That guy was a jerk. Yeah. A reprehensible jerk. Um, and we've not covered the Joker story yet. No, we will be doing it in a minute. Yeah, but that was really hilarious. Hilarious. Especially how it starts with him in the death part <laughs> of falling to his death <laughs> and doesn't say how he survived the fall. No, no, it just kind of happens. Uh, yeah, it's a really fun read. I chose this issue not only as a prime example of the kind of stories Batman Adventures did every month, regularly churning out heartfelt yet action-packed stories, often in one 22-page issue, but also the ability Paul Dini has of being funny and sad at exactly the same time. I love the Casablanca reference as well. Yeah, there's quite a few Casablanca references in Dini's stuff. He seems to be a big Casablanca fan. It can often be seen that the Batman is wasting his life, and here Dini managed to show us that it's not at all, and if Batman can make a difference to only one, he a Roxy Rocket, but in War on Crime, Marcus. So again, yeah, thematic yeah, yeah. links, <laughs> which we totally intended. We do, yeah. Didn't we? Uh, it, it can be worth it, as long as, it's what, as long as he affects one life. Along the way, the Scarface story is hilarious and chilling, showing, that as, it, showing as it does that sometimes normal people can be just as terrifying as his standard rogues, and proving what a good writer he is, Deanie milked pathos out of two glove puppets fighting over each other. <laughs> a scene that should have been completely ridiculous. Yep. And yet was sad. Yeah. You were reading it going, No, oh, don't go with the ventriloquist, don't go with Scarface, don't go go with Crokey. Go with Crokey. And of course <laughs> he chooses to go with, with Scarface. Likewise, in the Scarecrow story, it's once again outside influences that prevent Jonathan Crane from living a normal life. And in both stories, we sympathise with the supposed bad guys. Even Harley is influenced by outside forces, in her case the Joker, but all seem capable of changing their ways, something the Batman is aware of, and that gives him strength. Perhaps these don't actually fit the strict criteria of my pick, the Batman is largely a supporting character in these stories, but it's his influence on all these people that propel the narrative. As Michael mentioned, this issue also has another short story, Laughter After Midnight, was written by Paul Dini without by John Byrne and Rick Burkett. The Joker, after making another escape from the clutches of the Batman, entertains himself on the nighttime streets of Gotham. Now, this really isn't a Batman story, as Batman isn't even in it. It's a funny little Joker sequence, though, with some fine cartoony artwork. Was funny. Mm. wasn't it lovely hilarious little story we have reached the point in the show what I noticed about the last issue is that John Byrne artwork is completely different so that it suits the animated style whereas Klaus Janssen's art still looks horrible and Klaus Janssen he doesn't <laughs> at all yeah Byrne <laughs> definitely drew in the animated house style didn't he yeah. even though it's still recognisably Byrne yeah it's still recognisably Batman Adventures. Yeah, it's be- it's definitely the Batman Adventures. So it's you didn't like the Klaus Janssen art, then? No. <laughs> and the Scarecrow story? I thought, no, I like the Scarecrow story. No, the Scarecrow story is brilliant, that's and what I mean. The Klaus Janssen art, I thought, would have been better if he followed Burns' lead. And, and drew it in the animated yeah. style. Alright, fair enough. Um, we're into the part of the show now where Michael has no more. I don't know. Because he did ten. Yes, yeah, I followed, I followed the original the edict. Criteria. Yes, and I, I got it down to 13. Yeah. So if you've had enough, you can turn off now and I won't be offended. 
Technically, that was your 11th choice. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, I'm terribly disappointed. Next pick <laughs> is an unusual one in the sense that it's an idea I thought was absolutely terrible, but that a talented writer actually made work. Batman issue 584 is a cover date of December 2000 and a cover by Scott McDaniel. Batman, urban myth or reality, runs the cover, a mock-up of a supermarket tabloid, along with an artist's impression of what the Batman may look like. From our point of view, he looks a little bit like Man Bat. Looks like a wooden carving. That as well. The Dark Knight Project was written by Ed Brubaker, without by Scott McDaniel and Carl Story. The letter was John Costanza, the colorist was Roberta Tews, and the editor was Robert Shrek. David and Jason... David Jason. <laughs> oh, only British people are going to find that funny. David and Jason are two young filmmakers working on their film project, Man and Batman, interviewing people on the streets of Gotham and inadvertently interfering with the Batman's case to prevent a penguin money laundering operation. They have all the permits and permissions, so there's nothing Gordon can do about it. They interview many people, some who believe and others who do not, but when the penguin agrees to meet them, he tells them only one person knows the real truth about the Batman. Acquiring the proper permissions, they gain entrance to Arkham and speak to Harvey Dent, a.k.a. Two-Face, but the Penguin has set them up. Whilst there, a riot breaks out at Arkham, but the Batman is already there. He saves the two filmmakers, erasing the film with a powerful magnet, and tells them to get out of his city. The boys flee as the Batman jumps back into Arkham. Maybe they'll do a film about Green Lantern, they think. I thought this was alright. But there were some funny moments, uh, and the documentary bits were were pretty cool. But uh, well, I, I have two points actually. Oh, okay. One was that this isn't a Batman story. <laughs> your criteria was it out to have Batman. This is two in a row that Batman. It's not been a Batman story. You're breaking your own criteria again here. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly. Um, why was Batman an urban legend at this point? Uh, I honestly don't remember when the idea that Batman was an urban legend was first mooted. He was well known up until Troika. Yeah. And this issue actually points out that he was seen in No Man's Land. Yeah. Um, I want to say it was after Zero Hour, but I can't remember. And I've got to be honest, I did think it was one of the stupidest ideas I've ever heard. Whilst the Batman may prowl the night, he's been captured on film tons of times. He's been seen with presidents and kings, criminals and the common man. He's a member of the Justice League. (laughs) To proclaim that he's an urban legend, never caught on camera or seen only fleetingly. Especially, like you say, after No Man's Land, where he was seen by many people, innocent and guilty alike, was just stupid. So, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. (laughs) Why is this a favourite? Well, one, I was a big fan of Brubaker and Rucker's more noir-tinged Batman. And McDaniel's art is wonderful. But it's more than that. It's that, for this issue at least, Brubaker makes this work. Throughout the story, he had me convinced that, yes, this Batman is an urban legend. This Batman is a master of fear. This Batman is careful to cultivate the image of non-existence. And his friends are all in on it. And for the run of this one 22-page story, Brubacher managed to convince me that this idea could work. The story is structured well, the filmed portions are drawn with a film strip down the side and the other parts are normal. But with McDaniel's usual wonky panel work, a term I use as a compliment, 
The dialogue is great, and I was especially fond of the Batman asking Gordon to arrest them every night at dusk <laughs> and just release them every morning. Gordon says he can't do that, but it was a funny line. Especially funny as well, it's so deadpan. Is he joking? Yeah. Or is he being serious? I like the bit where he says, you got any other ideas? And he looks away and goes, no. <laughs> it's like Batman with a sense of humour. Possibly. <laughs> uh, I mean, of course it all falls apart if you think about it too long. So are Robin and Nightwing urban myths as well? <laughs> so what about the Justice League? Are they urban myths Superman's as well? Superman's an urban myth. Superman's an urban myth. But for one issue... Brubaker took an idea I thought was utterly preposterous and made it into a solid and enjoyable comic book. Proving once again it's not the idea, it's the writer. Mm. Um, for such a recent story, this is now more dated than some of the earlier stories, although magnets can harm hard drives. They cannot harm SD cards, so if the filmmakers of the film backed up to SD, this trick wouldn't work. And whilst I find the idea of an urban legend Batman to be a load of the fact that everybody has a camera on the phone now would make it practically impossible to be an urban legend. I suppose he could still use this to his advantage, never been seen properly, but it's still a bit of a stretch. Maybe he's only seen on smartphones and cameras, the kind of thing where it's only a bluff. Yeah, I don't know, <laughs> I still don't think I buy it, do you, really? I was just calling back to Batman 12. Yeah, yeah. thematic links that we See, thoroughly yeah. intended. Yep. when we planned this show. Scott McDaniel was promoted to regular Batman title after his excellent work on the Nightwing series with Chuck Dixon. His kinetic, cartoony style, I think, is excellent, but I understand he's quite divisive. Can't understand why, but to each their own. This era of Batman followed on from No Man's Land, where the Bat titles all received new creative teams, new logos and branding. Larry Harmer took over the writing of Batman with McDaniel on art, soon to be replaced by Ed Brubaker and Brian K. Vaughan. Greg Rucker took over Detective Comics, bringing some unusual colouring choices with it, and Greg Land joined Chuck Dixon on Nightwing. There was also a new Batman title launch called Gotham Knights, written by Devin Grayson with art by Roger Robinson, which also introduced the Batman black and white concept to the regular comics. The title is an obvious riff on the then current flavour of the month movie, The Blur Witch Project. The Bat Witch Project. Yes. I did quite like the title, The Batman Project. Does it, does it end with Batman making them face the corner of the wall and beating them? <laughs> I'm just scaring the crap out of him. No, it didn't. Finally, I'm looking at the running time of this episode. I'm sure every single listener out there is going, thank God for that. In order of publication, so not my all-time favourite Batman story, still the player on the other side, uh, concluding my Batman's Dozen, a comic cover dated August 2001. Do you like that? Just because you cheated. Just because I cheated, yeah. As mentioned above, the Batman titles went through a revamp in the early 2000s, and part of this was a new regular Batman title, Gotham Knights. It's arguable if Batman needed another title at this point, but whatever. In this shipping month of this year, according to Mike's Amazing World website, this brought the number of regular Batman books up to six, alongside seven Bat family books, but not included the Justice League of America book Batman was also in. But nevertheless, DC must have thought there was a market for another Bat book. One thing is inarguable is that the covers for the first 40 or so issues by Brian Bolland were magnificent. Gotham Knight seems to have become a casualty of bat saturation, largely forgotten now despite running for 74 issues. 
As few, if any, of the story have become classics, few, if any, have been made an impact on the trade shelf, becoming evergreen titles, and there seems to have been something of a fan backlash against writer Devin K. Grayson for some reason. It's better remembered now for the admittedly mostly excellent Batman black and white backup strips, although issue 32 was included in the more recent Batman The Greatest Stories Ever Told Volume 1 trade. Whatever the reason, this is a book I think you'll need to scour the back issue bins for, but I personally thought the series was one of the more interesting of the back titles being published at that time, certainly for the first 24 issues or so, after which I dropped the book as it became embroiled in another multi-title crossover that I didn't have the money to buy. What I liked about this era was that the Bruce Wayne murderer-fugitive art brought to an end was that for the most part they were self-contained, or at least self-contained in their own titles, and one of my favourites, Gotham Knights issue, was number 18. Cavernous was written by Devin K. Grayson, with art by Roger Robinson and John Floyd. The other stuff was Bill Oakley lettered. Colorist was Rob Schwager, and the editor was Bob Shrek. The cover has Aquaman sitting under the sea, shrugging at us, the reader, for there is no fourth wall in the ocean, as the giant penny normally found in the back caves sits nestled amidst the rocks behind him. It's Brian Bolland, so its magnificence is assured. Bolland can, on occasion, be a little stiff artistically, but this is a damn funny cover. What I want to know is why Aquaman... Aquaman's holding his breath underwater. <laughs> Just one of them things, dude. Is that why he's struggling? Yeah. He's, he's like going, I don't know why I'm holding my breath. I'm Aquaman. <laughs> uh, the story was the Batman is having a quiet night, what with Alfred gone and him being on the outs with Robin, and he's even started talking to the bats. Aquaman calls, but Batman cuts him off to take a call from a female admirer that he deliberately annoys. Still bored, Batman calls Oracle for something. After finishing, he calls her back. And then he calls her back again, only this time it's Dick Grayson who tells him to give it a rest. He takes to the streets, but not a lot is happening. He returns to the manor, slumps around, looks in the fridge, reads some books and bemoans his empty home. In the cave, he calls Aquaman back to ask him for his help retrieving the giant penny still trapped in a crack in the cave floor after the earthquake. The penny isn't budging, and Aquaman says, next time, just ask him to bring some beers and a film. I thought this was alright. Did, did you not like this one? I t- Nothing happened in it. Batman was unlikable. Yeah, I know he's bored. Nothing to do, but <laughs> he really does come across as unlikable to everyone he talks to. Mm. And surely it, it comes to something when Aquaman is the best part of a Batman story, <laughs> which is outrageous. <laughs> Very good. Uh, see, I've got a real soft spot for this one because it is. What does he do when he's not being Batman at night? See, this he's Bruce Wayne. Yeah, in many ways, this was the problem with the two thousands and ninety late nineties Batman. It's that Bruce Wayne was a cipher. Yeah, he was. This is a Batman. perfect night for Bruce Wayne to have been out on the town selling his Playboy image. Yeah, because there was nothing going on, and there are your criticisms are valid hmm. of it, but. I mean, thematically, it's similar to the rejected The Night of Thanks by No Thanks. So why did I pick this one and reject that one? And it's it's a memorable story, showing a bored and lonely Batman calling up Aquaman just to talk to somebody that isn't a, a bloody bat. I liked it. I thought this was fun. It was, it was a good story pointing out how isolated and alone Batman has become. And in many ways, I think it was a commentary on the fact that DC did this to him. Yeah. The Batman of the 70s wouldn't have been like this. He'd have been off having fun with Brave and the Bold or 
meeting up with Superman and having well, wacky adventures. The thing with this story is it only works in the time yes, that it was released. It which is my thinking of why it's a commentary on that. Yeah. And that's why I like it, I think, because I wasn't a fan of this Batman. So this pointing out that this Batman really is lonely and disconnected and totally useless socially yeah. is a is a good thing because it probably makes him change or at least I hope it did there are huge stretches of this comic that are just Batman wandering around the manor looking in Dick's old room untouched since he left and Alfred's room empty since Alfred has gone he spends a good deal of time reading and hysterically looking in the fridge eating nothing and closing it again which let's be honest we've all done (laughs) when we're bored does he not go for a pee out of boredom as well possibly (laughs) Uh, the title refers not only to the cave and the manor, but the depth of Bruce's loneliness. I did wonder what happened to Jason's room, but maybe he never had one. No. He just completely obliterated all memory of Jason. Yeah, yeah. All right, fair enough. He even looks up Catwoman's location on the computer. Yeah. Perhaps hoping to make a booty call, which I thought was funny. There's some nice artistic touches as well from the various passes of time shots to both the first page and last page being upside down as if from the point of view of the bats which I thought was great I thought this was a quiet but thought provoking and enjoyable issue the backup story the black and white the Batman black and white thing Fat City by Mike McMahon and Dave Gibbons is nicely satirical but by god the art's awful I didn't read it (laughs) fair enough I did like that inadvertently we started this pick of favourites about an issue with an issue about loneliness your yeah. Robin dies at dawn and we ended it on an issue about loneliness mm. again people aren't going to believe we didn't plan this no, no. this well oiled <laughs> machine that we have and that concludes our trip through our favourite Batman stories what surprised me about this was how easy it was to pick and how, of all the issues oh, I picked... it must have been easy for you to pick. It was, I, I ran over, didn't it? I know all the issues I picked, only one of them didn't hold up um, for the night of Thanks But No Thanks by Harlan Ellison. For the most part, I wrote down my favourite Batman stories in the book, and then I just whittled them down. I was also surprised by how many Ra's al Ghul stories there were, but Ra's has always been one of my favourite bad guys, a bad guy I actually find myself rooting for, perhaps in another life but his ubiquity caused me to reject another story, Batman Annual Number 8. I was surprised by how few of my stories contained the traditional rogues gallery of adversaries. I could have easily picked 20 great Joker stories, and have. Stay tuned for next year's Dreadful Birthday Dear Joker series of shows for them, or great Two-Face and Catwoman comics. I could have easily picked 13 different issues of the Batman Adventures, I was also happy I found I could pick these favourites without ever going near the more obvious choices like Long Halloween, Hush, Year One or others of that ilk. It's not that they aren't great, they are, but they are readily available in trade or other collections and I've hoped to shine a back signal on stories that don't seem to get that much love, although I don't think any back fans would deny Night of the Stalker or There Is No Hope in Crime Alley are classics. But mostly, I wanted to pick stories that meant something to me, that showed what I saw in Batman, why I loved him as a kid, and still love him today. I wanted to show off the more human Batman, the man who has a love life and a complicated relationship with his closest friends, but isn't emotionally stunted or angry all the time, which is why Gotham Knights 18 is almost an aberration, because it draws attention to the emotionally stunted Batman of the late 90s, early 2000s. So, 
after reading all of this, all these stories, following this one character almost more than any other comics character except for Spider-Man, what conclusions have I reached? Batman is cool. I never said it was a deep or original <laughs> conclusion. What have you learned about Batman throughout reading these and picking your favourite stories? Um, is he your favourite superhero? Because as a kid, I always thought he was your favourite. I deviate. Um, well, I know you're a deviant. But yeah. Oh, sorry, that's not what you said. Um, but no, I... Writers bring me onto a book, mm. but then the hero in that book will then be my favourite hero. Mm. I can read through Jeff Johns' Green Lantern and he'll be my favourite hero. You, sh- you should read his Wally West Flash run. Well, I can read his uh, Flash run and Barry Allen will be my favourite superhero. I can read Morrison's Batman or Loeb's Batman or anyone's Batman and he'll be my favourite hero. Or Spider-Man. And mm. I don't know, I don't quite like Marvel characters as much. But it's, it's like that. Anyone who I read, they then become They're your favourites at that time. Yeah. That's fair enough. See, for me, I've said before my four favourites, and Batman transcends writers. Yeah. He was around before most of them. He'll be around after they're gone. And he's just a great archetypical character. Yeah. I think. Anyway, we hope you dug this as much as we did. I do apologise for this episode going on a lot longer. Than we had planned. I blame Professor Allen for sending us a yeah, provoking yeah. email. It's not our fault. <laughs> no, or it's your fault for having yes, 15. Yeah, yeah. That, that was totally not my fault. <laughs> I know I've tried to give a cross section of Batman tales that have influenced how I see the character, which I know may not be how others see it. More than any other superhero or comics character in general, and I include Superman in this assessment, the Batman has a different persona for everyone. To some, he's a dark knight vigilante, dealing out justice with fists of iron. To others, he's a smiling champion of good, shaking hands with government officials and smiling at kids. To some, he's a kid's character, relegated to the funny books. To others, he's one of the most psychologically complex characters in literature. To others still, he's a detective, solving his cases like Columbo in a cape. He's all of these and more. He's survived good times and bad, good comics and bad, good adaptations and bad adaptations. He's survived Frederick Wortham and Adam West. He's survived the Rainbow Batman and the Caped Crusader, (laughs) the Comics Code and the Mature Reader's Imprint. He survived science fiction and grim and gritty. Swear to me, and imps from another dimension. Joel Schumacher and bat nipples. World War II and glasnost. He's been everything from underpants to Pez dispensers. Big budget movies to bargain basement TV specials. But his popularity shows no sign of waning. As of this recording, he has an all-new computer-generated animated series on television, a brand new game, Arkham Origins, ready to be released, and a new film series in development with Ben Affleck taking over the iconic role. With the number of comics he appears in in every month, never has DC Comics been so aptly named. He's conquered every medium known to man and will probably conquer a few more yet to be invented. He's lost his definitive article and proudly reclaimed it. He's been a joker, a superhero, a ruthless vigilante and a man of the people. He's both the 1% and the 99%. He represents the oppressed and the disenfranchised, for he is the knight. He is vengeance. He is the Batman. Long may he reign. I don't think we can add anything to that, can we? No, that was a... Did you like that? It was a very nice ending. Thank you very much. Uh, Next week, 
It's the 150th episode of Hey Kids Comics. You'll know what it's about, won't we, Dick? Indeed. <laughs> See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com, and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. (laughs) 